Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, world-class biotinker, and I'm here with my biological jukebox, Scott Daly. Here, let me just push this button and... I love you, you love me, and as you said, this is a podcast where you... A worm expert guide me, a first-time reader. That's people got to hear me sing beautifully. Yeah, that beautifully. was lovely. It was I, like, you, with headphones on, you can hear your voice like perfectly, <laughs> like other people hear it, and it's like, yeah, I should, I should have been singing. I should have been doing that. <laughs> uh, but yes, this is the podcast where you guide me, a worm expert, or no, no, you are the worm expert. I am the first-time reader. As we read Wild Bo's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between, as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, Matt, we're covering Arc 25, Scarab, and this one is all about time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I want you to share your your insight into what the Scarab means, because uh, we talked about this between ourselves before, and I was like, you know, I don't really know what... Even after having read the arc, I wasn't sure what Scarab meant, but you, you had a really good idea. Yeah, I wasn't I thought... sure either. I basically just started Googling scarabs and finding every bit of information about scarab beetles I can find. And of course, the scarab is a, a sacred bug in ancient Egypt. Um, I think Ra, like Ra has many different forms, but one of the forms of Ra was uh, Kepri, um, who was like the morning manifestation of Ra that is a scarab beetle that pushes the sun across the sky so my guess my guess and i don't know if it's true that 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 that's a, a symbol for the passage of time which is something that's very key to everything that's happening throughout this arc i mean we have the end bringer whose power is to literally create zones of time uh bending uh we have our big time jump that happens and and that with the we have the big time jump that i think goes over a year and a half but throughout the arc there's weeks that go by and months that go by between chapters which is something that this the story has never really done before we've had a little bit of of jumps but nothing as substantial as anything we see in these chapters yeah and we also see a lot of time jumps even in the interlude in parallel with the time jumps that we're seeing in the main uh, the main plot line uh, which yeah. is unusual yeah and of course on on top of all this is that ever looming countdown that time counter um, towards the end of the world that is kind of coming center stage here as as Taylor uh, gets situated and then decides that she needs to start planning not to save one single person, not to help her people in her city, but really moves towards preventing the end of the world or at least preparing. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of really interesting stuff this this arc that I'm excited to get to. Yeah, I am too. Um, this was definitely, I would say, not my favorite arc that we've covered. Um, there's some stuff that I think we're going to talk about that I think works better than others. I think we're going to have a big, long conversation about that big time jump, um, which I think is unsurprisingly a, a controversial decision. Um, I think anytime you make big time leaps in stories, it is a controversial decision. Some people like it. Some people don't. Um, I think there are things that, that it does very well in here. Um, and there, there are other parts that I, I don't like as much, but um, as with anything worm, even if I have, large uh not great things to say there are still moments throughout every single one of these chapters that uh, i see incredible work that is engaging and fun and really exciting and and it's great to talk about 
Yeah, there, there are definitely a few points in here that that surprised me and in, 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 in terms of taking the story in a direction I didn't think it was going to go. And uh, we'll talk about this, those specifically as they come up. But that's always delightful when when you think you've got a handle on a story and it and it throws you a curveball. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So in terms of uh, announcements, um, first of all, Worm, the, the prelude run up to Worm 2 uh, or, or actually Parahumans 2, more, more correctly, has has begun the first um, prelude. I suppose we can use the word chapter snippet, whatever it is, um, has been has been released. And I have read it. Scott has not. And I'm I'm going to there there was there was nothing that could stop me. So <laughs> we ta- I think I think we had about a 30 second conversation that was like, should you read it also? And we we're just like, yeah, I might yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I got to like, just keep it. Keep it's it like the way it is. there's a whole conversation that Taylor has with the director of the PRT that's like, you're not going to listen to me when we make compromises. <laughs> so might as well just let you go and just plan for it. So that's that's, that's, that's what we did. That's what we yeah, did. Right. I mean, just think, Scott, I could have been spoiled if I hadn't just read it. <laughs> that's true, because yeah. there's no, been no threat of that happening to me for the past six months. No, but now we're talking about me, Scott. Me. <laughs> okay, I All see. Right. I see. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then our next announcement is uh, th- that we're beginning uh, the second fan art contest. So this is our quarterly fan art contest that we do for for Worm. Um, and the theme we put it up to a vote on Twitter, and the the theme that was chosen by um, by majority, although I think there were a, a lot of people liked all all the different suggestions. Yeah, it was pretty was, close. Yeah, was uh, Doctor Yamada saves the world, um, and you can pretty much interpret that however you will, because we sort of intentionally chose kind of vague phrasings. Uh, the artwork is due on Wednesday, November twenty second by 11:59 p.m. That's the day before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um yeah, so we I don't think we've officially like put a post out. It's not that I don't think. I know for a fact as of the time we're recording this we have not put the official post announcement out yet, but by the time you're listening to this that will be out. You can go to dailyplanetfilms.com and check that check all the, the the rules and instructions there on how to send that into us and everything. Um I'm excited about this Matt. I I, I like that our theme is broad, but um, is it, is, would you say it has breadth and depth? Would you say I that? would, yeah, I would say that that's a fair thing to say. Also <laughs> say goodbye. Okay. That doesn't, oh. doesn't really make no. any sense. Okay. All right. Let's, let's move on. All right. So comments and questions from last week. Uh, so we had, we had, an, uh, th- this was just a question, I, I guess, that we wanted to, to address because we both had some, some kind of thoughts and reactions to it. This is from a, an email from one, two. Um, and the question is basically why, why were Imp and Regent at the behemoth fight in the first place? Since both of them have powers that have, well, uh, uh, Regents have sort of proven to not be very useful against Endbringers, you could say, and Imps haven't been tried against an Endbringer, but don't sound particularly useful in an offensive capacity, but I think we, we both had kind of answers to why they would be there. So, so, uh, yeah. What, what do you think, Scott? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the easiest answer is cause the book, the book said so. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think, uh, first of all, I think Brian as a leader is not very good at telling people where they can and can't go. Um, especially when it comes to his sister who he has been, really hard to control he's tried to be really strict with her 
Um, so especially like Imp, you get the idea that she was going to come no matter what. And her power allows her to sneak on the ship and come anyway. So I, I don't think there was any stopping that. But I, I also think that like, you know, it's not just people that can battle directly against the Endbringer and can use their, their power directly to do damage. I mean, there's a lot of support things going on here. I, I think um, there are ways that they could absolutely help throughout this battle. Um, and there are ways that they do, obviously. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Gru probably would prefer his his sister not to be here. But uh, I don't think he would have been able to stop that at all. Yeah. Um, I, and I feel like as for as for Alec being there, this is yet another moment where if you just interpret Alec on the surface level as like, oh, he's just a lazy kid who's trying to avoid responsibility, then then yeah, Alec wouldn't be there. But the fact is that that is not who Alec is. Um, yeah, he, he, he was, he was someone who fought Leviathan before and, and he's really somewhat devoted actually, you know, I, I would say very devoted to these people who've kind of adopted him, his, his teammates. And if they're going to go, then he's going to go. And I think he probably, you know, made, made a joke out of it, you know, oh, yeah. if, <laughs> when he was asked, but like, he's probably like, why the fuck are we even doing this? This is stupid, but yeah, he's still right. going to be there. Absolutely. Yeah. But it, yeah if, if you guys are going to go fine, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's and 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 plus they didn't know that Imp's power wouldn't work. If Imp's power had worked, then she could have snuck around and probably saved some people. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So then moving on. Uh. So King Bob Twelve, um, champion of <laughs> of Alec, wrote a wonderfully detailed and beautiful tribute to Alec over on the Reddit, and and it's it's fairly long. We're not going to read all of it. But we did pull a couple of paragraphs. Um, do you want to take turns reading the paragraphs, Scott? Does that, does that sound good? Sure. You want to go first? Sure. Alex's power has always been this thing where he can make other people do things that he can't or won't do himself. I imagine a large portion of his trauma is due to his time with Heartbreaker, where his father pushed harder and harder on Alec, always forcing him to do things he, Alec didn't want to do. Where his siblings and his father's slaves all, took on passive, all looked on passively while Alec is pushed by his father. So... Uh, so that Alec grew up with people all around him, unable or unwilling to help, uh, and his power is a reflection of that. His power no longer allows people to stand by while he is helpless, so long as he knows them well enough. It's this perversion of intimacy and familial protectiveness that Alec has always been denied, that he only just started to find that with the Undersiders. Um, sorry, that, that he only just started to find with the Undersiders. That he thinks is so is, is worth so much to him that it's better to die than to lose that imitation of familial protectiveness and care. Yeah. And, and at the core of Alex's trauma is this inability to stand by himself, to stand in the face of his fears, and to stand against everything he hates. His father, his own actions, his family, his power, his loss of control. This moment where Alex says, fuck it. This moment Alex is standing against everything that he hates. He's standing for what he wants, what he desires, what he needs. This is Alex making that choice to heal and fight back against his trauma. And he dies for it. It's not a glorious death, or even a great death. It is a good death, though where he does exactly what he attends and does something so unambiguously good that is one of perhaps half a dozen such actions he takes in his entire life. Um, that was fantastically well-written. Um, it, it, it got to a point, honestly, Matt, where every time we talked about Alec, I was kind of afraid to because I was just like, King Bob's going to swoop in and, and show me up. <laughs> um, so it was always like, I, 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 like someone's going to outdo me here. Um, and so when we finished the, the Alec's death interlude, 
I was I was anxiously awaiting to see what he had to say about it and did not disappoint. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think everyone should head over there and, and read read what he wrote cuz it's 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 really great. It's it's a great character and he brings a lot of light to why exactly it's a great character. Yeah. And and you know there's like the, I think there's moments where I wish we could have done a little bit deeper deeper dive, but we've got so much to cover that sometimes we just have to just just skim the surface a little bit and and uh, I I appreciate there was somewhere out there that that could do that deep dive. Yeah, and you know I don't think we're done talking about him because even in this even in this arc, there's a moment where we where Taylor uh, reflects on it. It's so, so fucking good. It's so yeah. good. All right, and speaking of which, let's just go ahead into the arc, Scott. We open up twenty five dot one with Taylor and Glenn taking part in a meeting where the PRT higher ups. Uh, used Taylor's actions during the behemoth fight against her to justify revoking her provisional wards membership, basically. Uh, she's So she, she's violated the letter of her, of her probation, even though it happened during an inbringer fight. So they're, you know, just go ahead and, and hit, her, hit her with the book. Yeah, and, and this, this whole conversation, I think, is pretty interesting because I think it's very clearly kind of set up that we're either supposed to be or just kind of naturally are on Taylor's side here. We've seen all the shit she just went through. We've seen all the sacrifice she had to make. And, and you and I both kind of agreed that the thing she had to do in that last, uh, that last arc showed a measure of growth from her that she, um, had to make the tough decision and had to find this middle ground between who she was and who she wanted to be. So coming into this, we're like, yeah, she found that middle ground and she was successful and things worked out. And then you have the PRT swoop in and be like, no, you didn't follow orders. You did this. So we're kind of immediately on her side. And but the, the flip side of that is I don't think the PRT is wrong here either. Like she did break. She did not listen to orders. They gave her explicit instructions as part of her her probationary status with the wards. And she did not listen to them. So I think I think once again, what Wild Bo does is is constructs a good argument from both sides of things to where you obviously want to side with your character. But in the back of your your mind, it's like, yeah, well, I mean. They're kind of right, though. Yeah, it, it's interesting because because you're in Taylor's head, you're inclined to say, oh, you know, they were already biased against her. They were just looking for an excuse to get rid of her. And and she made some mistakes. So they're just going to they're just going to use that. Yeah. Um, um, and. Uh, sorry, um, but but actually, I think in reality, um, Glenn is there to basically tell her uh, after the fact that you know, Hey, you could have made friends with that guy. This didn't have to go the way it went. Um, and, and, and that's, that's good for us to hear as the readers, because we were, you know, we tend to be too much in her head and and to hear Glenn say like, Hey, you know, not only do I disagree that he was biased against you, but, um, actually you could have totally turned this around. Right. Yeah. There's definitely a feeling that because these are the authority figures, because the PRT, they are against her, but we, you're right. We don't get any, any real tangible evidence of that at this moment. Now, later, once she's made enemies out of all of them, they are very specifically trying to to hampen the things that she do and, and check her. But right now, they're just like legitimately concerned about this serial murderer who is who is now working on their team that uh, that seemingly cannot follow orders. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, she kind of tunes out during this discussion and, and then tunes back in when they start discussing the birdcage 
and she's kind of terrified that they're talking about sending her there. But then she realizes that they're talking about tapping the birdcage for access to strong capes who they want to use against inbringers because they feel like they need it. Um, and and they, they say that the rationale for indefinite detention has been getting weaker. Yeah. And this is another in- indication of of how rough it is for me to like the PRT because every time I think I'm starting to understand them, they're, they're in the middle of chastising Taylor for associating with a bad guy and helping him do a thing that could have gotten people killed without authorization. And now they're talking about like doing the exact same thing. Like, like Taylor bad, like you don't associate with that madman. Okay. But should we associate with these madmen? Cause yeah. we need, and it's just like, it, it comes like almost awkwardly right in the middle of this debate about Taylor that suddenly we're like, okay, but let's talk about the birdcage a little bit. And it's really interesting. And I just like the PRT one step forward, two steps back. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting that these people of of all the people are are willing to make these deals, and I I wonder. I mean, maybe I'm reaching a bit, but it's almost like they know they can't control Taylor, but maybe they think that they can control some cape out of the birdcage if if they make a a proper deal with them. You know, they they can get a, a better hold over them because they'll they'll be trading their their release from the birdcage, whereas Taylor already has kind of too much political power almost. Yeah, and I guess we we should definitely note that this this whole conversation is echoed rather explicitly in the Cauldron uh, discussion chapter, where they we move from the PRT discussing this to Cauldron discussing this with everyone, um, and I think that's an explicit tieback that you're seeing these two different organizations, one of which you know is Cauldron, who has done terrible things to people, and then here's the PRT talking about a similar thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So at, at this point, I like this moment where she's so angry that she fantasizes about going back to the undersiders. Yeah, and I think this fits like I think you and I have specifically talked about villainy as like an addiction metaphor for her before. Um, and, and I think that very much fits in this moment that that she's times are rough. Things are not going well. And she's really tempted by that easy out. How easy it would be to just like fucking attack everybody and wreck their shit and then run back to her friends who of course would welcome her with open arms. She could patch everything back up with her dad and everything would be fine. And she'd go be back to where she's comfortable in her and safe in her addiction. Um, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense because what she's craving right now is escape and escape is what being a villain was for her in the first place. I think it became more than that, but, but definitely this idea of she she feels like she's cornered, she's boxed in, she's trapped, she's being bullied, and she wants that that release and that freedom. Yeah, but but she doesn't do it, does she? Nope. She doesn't do it. She specifically states to herself, that wouldn't get me anywhere. Mm-hmm. That's character growth right yeah, there. So, so she just uh, patiently uh, takes what they tell her, right? Yeah, that she does. She doesn't do any other kind of action, right. any any kind of insidious planning at all. No. Yeah. No. We're we're skipping ahead a little bit. So so first, um, they they, they discovered the costume that she was secretly weaving in in her in her prison. Yeah, which basically is the start of uh, several beats where Taylor's basically like, I only broke the rules when the Endbringers were around, and that doesn't really count. And the PRT's like, Well, no, because like you did this. And then mm-hmm. you did this other thing and then you did this other thing. Right. <laughs> and, and like it, it's she doesn't really have anything to say about it because she's like, oh, shit, you know about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
right um but it it leads to this moment where they basically declare um you're dangerous taylor unpredictable you're deceptive clever enough to come up with tricks but not clever enough to stick to the straight and narrow from the beginning armstrong said it himself you're good at manipulating people and i think it's funny because taylor's reaction to this is not not uh it's not not as good as i want to be yeah like if, if i was good at manipulating people then we wouldn't be having this conversation yeah 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 um yeah it's worth pointing out on top of all this that she's physically and mentally exhausted too because she hasn't really had a rest since the flight from um new delhi it's also really taxing to continue pretending that she's not devastated about alec right boom got her yeah. got her count it um and and this she kind of loses her patience and goes physically exhausting too i said not taking my eyes off the chief director you know running around fighting behemoth while you guys sit on your glenn shifted one leg under the table pressing it against mine a nudge not overt <laughs> if glenn just had like a pocket tailor around just like nudge her whenever she starts doing something inappropriately yeah. i think the world would be much better off yeah a little voodoo tailor yeah <laughs> um yeah they so they fire glenn at that moment which doesn't surprise him at all nope. uh, and then they broach the idea of pressing charges against taylor um which makes her fairly angry uh, so th- what's happening here is all these non-Cape PRT people are, are explicitly undermining Chevalier's new protectorate vision while he's convalescing from his uh, Cody injuries. Yeah, and I think that's once again showing this this central disconnect at the core of this organization that that you have the PRT and you have the protectorate and they're supposed to basically be this one thing with one overseeing the other. But they continually contradict each other. They continually work against each other and plot against each other. And it's no wonder that this organization is disorganized. Um, and, and and again, I think like what the stuff does is you don't like what the PRT is doing in this moment, but you do kind of understand it. Like, I think there's like, it'd be very easy to just write them off, but if you think about it, if you think about the, the core of what they're saying and don't attach the insidiousness with to it that Taylor often does, they're just trying to look out for the, the interests of their organization in the long term. And Taylor is kind of unpredictable. Like, like she, they don't know what they don't seem to be able to rein her in and nothing seems to be working. And every time she's had a test, she's she's broken a rule. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, it's very easy for me to actually slip into their perspective of like, why should we give you any more chances when you seem to not listen to anyone and and, you know, pathologically break every rule that is set in front of you? It's it's yeah, you're you're a juvenile delinquent with superpowers. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I don't know. What is the argument why we should li- be listening <laughs> to you again? Right. And 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 we can remember so many arcs ago where she heard that that Armsmaster was not punished for the things he did um, because he was needed and she was kind of furious about that, about like the PRT is not punishing people when they when they break rules, when they don't listen, when they do things outside of, of their authority. And mm-hmm. and here's Taylor trying to benefit from that exact same system that that they need her more than they need her in prison. And she's going to benefit from that. Yeah. So, so he or she does a thing which you could call clever or I don't know if Glenn would call it clever, though, because um, as usual, she can't just sit and take the punishment. So she starts rebroadcasting the contents of the meeting uh, to the rest of the building through her swarm voice 
and relatively quickly some hero capes show up uh, and basically burst through the door in standard uh, parahuman fashion and then they're all incensed at what has been going on and they stand up for taylor yeah it's really amazing how often taylor just like rolls the dice on these type of things like it's just Mm -hmm. like okay i'm backed into a corner i'm gonna do this thing i don't know how this is gonna work out for me but it might and and i think to be fair to her in this moment they've literally just told her your promotion your probationary status is revoked you're going back to jail for two years and then we'll talk to you when you're 18 so she really is kind of like out of options but this all also could have really backfired yeah um so it's just now occurring to me that like this scene actually parallels um her meeting with glenn as a stand-in for her dad where she's at a you know she's having a meeting she's at a she's in a conference room full of people who are all in her mind unfairly biased against her and and not listening to her and and have her trapped and hemmed in and and her dad surrogate here glenn is basically on her side and and trying to help but sort of ineffectual because he just you know he doesn't have any power here and and in in this situation though she has the means of 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 escaping it with her power so of course she does it's almost like a little a little uh repetition of that particular trauma of that meeting no i think you're absolutely right because in that original meeting there were members of the school board that kind of seem to be on her side a little bit. And we get that same beat here where one of these directors seems to, to be more understanding of her, but then like he kind of shifts and flip flops and she's individually frustrated by each one of these people. Um, and of course it, it, we do see a difference in, in that original one, she kind of got pissed off and yelled at everyone and stormed out. And this one, she just calmly moves into her swarm and uses them to get what mm-hmm. she wants. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, really interesting meeting. So the meeting ends and Glenn gives some strategic advice. He mentions that she might have been able to make that director an ally, which we mentioned. Um, and now, unfortunately, he's a, a more or less permanent enemy because that's how his mind works. He tells her that she needs a big success, a big visible success, and that she has to keep the big visible successes coming or they will they will undermine her and try to get rid of her because that's kind of what they were trying to do here actually yeah and thus ends the idea that taylor's time in the wards is going to be this peaceful idyllic thing that we had seen in some of the previous chapters that um that maybe finally she could relax a little bit and stop in this constant like run from dangerous situation to dangerous situation and life or death situation to life or death situation and and that's gone now because even as a member of the ward, she can't relax. She has to be going and she has to be going big and taking big chances or else she's screwed. Yeah. And and we'll see what that looks like. And, and I think now is probably the time to start talking about time passing um, or, or maybe in just a minute. But but we can we can, you know, just peek ahead for a second and, and mention that fairly quickly we get to those those big victories that she's that she's supposed to do. And then instead, of, you know, we don't. We don't just we don't dwell on that, though. We just say, like, yeah, this is the kind of thing that she does. And then push that fast forward button and imagine lots and lots of that happening. And then you move on to the next thing. And we didn't need to see, you know, the uh, the, the filler arc of Taylor defeating 27 different small time <laughs> villains in, right. in Chicago. Although yeah. when they make the anime, I'm sure they'll she'll have that in there. 
Don't don't um, do that. Why would you? <laughs> why would you do that? I just I guess involuntarily shivered. I'm sorry, Scott. Um, Anime sucks. Yeah, so we we skip we skip <laughs> we skip ahead a little bit um, to her swearing in as a probationary awards member, and Danny shows up at the swearing in, surprising her. She hasn't seen him in a while, and after the ceremony, he asks if things can be fixed between them. She says, no, they can't really be fixed, not back to the way they were, but uh, maybe that's a good thing because the way they were wasn't great. It was it was a huge deception, really, and maybe the things that exist between them need to be torn down and then rebuilt in a, in a functional and honest way, and then they agree that he'll visit when he can. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting that she moves from talking about them to talking about society almost immediately. Like he asks, can we fix us? And her response is, no, we can't fix us. Society can't be fixed. And it's like, wait a minute. What, what, what did you jump from their personal relationship to talking about society as a whole? Um, and I think this is a very interesting interpretation because she's, she's using the definition of the word fixed as literal as possible, which is just our relationship is broken. So we're going to fix it and return it to its exact same form. And when I when I hear the phrase fix a relationship, that's not what I think. I don't think, oh, well, we'll just go back to exactly the way it was before it was broken because that'll work. Um, so but but she is very literal with that definition and she's very tear it down, kind of anarchistic in that that nature. Um, and I mean, like, I, I get what she's saying. I think the problem with expanding this to society is large at large is like what kind of destruction is caused by you tearing every social structure down and rebuilding it and like who falls through the cracks and that and like what's the result of that thing as you try to tear it all down instead of just trying to fix it um who suffers in that that scenario yeah yeah right it's it's i mean i'm sure i'm sure her you know any any what's happened between them seems like it should be able to be fixed in in the sort of common sense use of the word yeah. but you're, you're right that she's being very very literalist and and uh it seems like her mind is elsewhere like you say because she's she's thinking about society being very abstract about things yeah and i think that's a good indication that you know from here on out we see taylor move beyond concern for anything but the like d-day like end of world yeah. like judgment yeah. day big um, picture yeah so and that's kind of the first signal that that's that's where she's heading. Yeah. So we skip ahead again. And I think it's worth pointing out now we're kind of we're kind of jumping in, in slightly larger and larger chunks of time, or at least that's my perception. We skip ahead to uh, Campanile giving her the rundown on the facilities at the uh, new Chicago uh, Wards HQ while she tries to avoid looking at his superhuman package. <laughs> um and she'll be so basically he explains how she'll be selling her silk through the kind of inter um, inter protectorate system of how various capes who can make things trade things uh, with with one another. Uh, and she'll also be sleeping on the premises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about dicks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't know how you feel about dick jokes or this dick joke in particular, but. I loved it. Um, like we have this introduction to it and Taylor, like, like I remember in my live tweet, I was like, Oh my God, Taylor, stop mentioning his junk. Like it's just like every other paragraph is like, and it's like, 
like it's random thing like he says like oh i'm gonna go after this i have to go run to a school to give a speech in front of the kids and it's like i hope you don't go dress like that and it's like taylor what the hell is wrong with you like calm down and and i think we hold that beat for just long enough where it starts to feel like really weird and really out of place when the payoff of the thing lands yeah right because then she joins the wards in their common room and they're all doing some variation of wearing an eggplant in their pants um and and instead of reacting to this, she just like coldly stares them down um, and kind of like breaks them all before eventually smiling and admitting that it was funny. Yeah. And it, it, <laughs> overall, I think it's this. This is one of the more minor like, things that was that was surprising in this arc, because it's like it, it gives you this immediate like release of tension because you're, you're kind of anxious about how she's going to interact with these new wards. And, and maybe you have some images of like shadow stalker and the and and the um and, and the uh Brockton bay awards in your head or maybe you have images of her first meeting with the undersiders in your yeah. head where she had to kick somebody in the face <laughs> and it's like nope just they they do the most the most harmless possible form of of hazing yeah and then they and then they all clearly feel bad about it and they're like oh we shouldn't have done that that was a mistake well, i'm sorry i'm sorry taylor right and i think i think that and I can't believe we're about to have a serious conversation about penis jokes, but I, I yeah. think that is why the the thing works so well and why this never like crosses a line into, hey, this is really offensive territory, <laughs> because I think it would be very easy to see this as just this really like weird, super sexist kind of thing to do to the new woman in your group. Just be like, hey, it's a girl. Stare at our dicks, please. Mm. Um, but but the text kind of directly addresses that by having them all kind of standing around after the joke finishes being like, uh, that was, that was kind of weird that we did that. Wasn't it? And it's like this idea that, Hey, this thing that you're a bunch of dudes planning together, uh, in another room and then executing it are like two really different things. Right. And, and, and the joke ends up turning and, and being at the expense of the guys doing this rather than at Taylor's expense specifically. And that, and that turns it from being this borderline offensive thing to you're just laughing along with these idiots who thought this would be a good idea and like are clearly embarrassed by it. And I think that's why, that's why it works the way it does. Yeah. And and I do actually think that it serves as a way of showing some character growth from Taylor because there's a chance that Taylor circa a few months ago, if this had happened to her, would have been like, fuck these guys. Like they're, they, yeah. they, they already, they don't accept me. They're already bullying me. And, and it, and it might have, it might have done what Golem was thinking and, and been exactly the wrong thing to do, to, to do to her. Luckily she's moved a little bit past that in her journey and it's not like the, the most offensive thing in the world to her anymore. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right that, that, that she gets out of this just abling to, to kind of like laugh it off and shrug it off and then go sit down and and think okay this is my home now and then these are these are my people now for better or worse these guys who put who put things in their dick and then like the the beat where like they make golem like use his power to put something on the one that's in uh (laughs) wanton's it's like god it's so good it's so good. It's so different it, from what we've seen in this book. Like this level yeah. of comedy is very different. And and I think that's one thing that the first three chapters of this arc kind of do in general is there's a lot of funny kind of absurdist parts in this. And I think that's that's very intentional. And I, I, we'll see why when we get there. But 
um it's 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 different and it's refreshing and i liked it yeah there's a lot of shift in in character and tone that's happening here so yeah then we move into 25.2 and uh again we've we've skipped ahead kind of an indeterminate amount of time and taylor is taking theo running um and it's it's clear from their conversation that They've they've spent some time together talking about what's up with with both of them. He asks her about what it's like to fight Jack Slash, um, and they, they, they just, it's clear it's clear that they know each other at this point. Yeah, and it's like we talked about time and the importance of time as a theme running through this arc, and and it's easy to forget that on top of this end of the world thing that's happening, Theo has his own very personal holy shit. I have to be ready for this thing. Um, and, and it's, it's very clear here in the, like the first interaction we have with these two characters as people who know who each other are. It's one of the first things he brings up, like, like it's something that's ever present in his mind. Um, it, it's, it's pushing him and, and nagging at him constantly. And, yeah. and, and Theo, I think we see in, in this moment that Theo kind of like Taylor, like lacks patience a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. he's got this looming thing over his head and, and he he knows he has to get better. He has to get faster and and smarter and stronger as soon as possible. And like Taylor's like, no, this is going to take some time. Like the, the just just the jogging is is a metaphor for that whole thing. Where like they've been jogging, I think it's like six weeks now, and he's made incremental but slow progress. And and she's just like, look, this is what it takes, and this is what you have to do. And and he he understands that, but it frustrates him because he's terrified of failing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, but, but but you're right. Like, I think the thing that, that, that stands out here is that he's, he's really pushing himself consistently really hard. So after their run, they get back and, and then they spar and Golem. Uh, so, so I, I don't remember how much, or maybe he's changed his costume since the behemoth fight a little he bit. Has, I'm not yeah. sure, but yeah. yeah. So he has this fan of materials on his costume that he uses to basically stick his hands into and then he can create hands out of almost any surface that happens to be around that matches those materials on the fan. Um, so they're, they're fighting and, and she, I didn't go into too much detail on describing their, their sparring other than that. She's, she's pushing him really hard physically and she's also pushing him mentally. Like she's, she's, she's not necessarily being encouraging so much as she's like, come on, Theo, you've got to, you, you, you've got to be better than this. You know, it's, she's kind of being, kind of being hard on him verbally. Yeah. She's not babying him at all. Um, which is kind of something that people had always kind of done to him. You know, I think we had a whole conversation back when pre Cape Theo, uh, how childish he seemed, how he was the same age as Taylor. But like whenever you saw him interact with people and how inter- people interacted with him, they treated him like he was a child. And this is this is fundamentally different from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love the the fan of material idea. Um, I don't think we ever get any confirmation, but that seems so smart that part of me thinks it was Taylor's idea. And mm-hmm. of course, somebody else probably implemented it. I don't think she made it herself, but it just seems like a Taylor thing. Like, oh, well, you just have this like this little expanding fan of material and then you can do anything. Um, it just seems very Taylor. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But we haven't. We haven't um, seen training in such a long time mm-hmm. in this in this story. Like the last time I can think of is is really Taylor sparring with Brian um, way way back a long time ago, and that one was just a session to demonstrate the the oozing sexual tension between these two characters. Um, and, and so so I think we, we we if you compare that 
to to this one now we've seen taylor go from the the trainee to the the trainer and she is now and she's training him in a very similar way like brian really did not hold back on her very much at all either like he really pushed her and she's doing the same thing so i think it's a good callback to that yeah i agree except i think i think they weren't using powers no no it was specifically just fighting yeah right but she's i don't think she's holding back with her her powers here either is she no yeah it's like escalation yep (laughs) but i mean i think you're going to learn to use your powers a lot faster if you're if you're practicing them that way yeah that's true so yeah um it turns out uh, I, I think we're yeah I, I lose track of time here actually but basically uh, an inbringer attack is now suddenly in progress and the Seamurg is attacking a jetliner over the ocean which is everyone is kind of surprised uh, and only natural flyers are invited to the fight so Taylor can't participate and basically her and the other wards just watch on TV as the Seamurg dodges around the plane um, and then starts to defend the plane from from the heroes and finally idolan destroys the plane and now everybody just gets to wait to find out what the terrible fallout of this event will be yeah and i i really love how wildbo handled this whole thing uh, i think throughout worm we've gotten to see this real sense of escalation uh, we've talked about that so much that things are just getting worse and worse and if there's ever like a moment of victory well, things are just going to get worse again. So, so there's this, 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 both we and the entire world have this expectation for the next time an Endbringer shows up that it's going to be twice as bad. Like in, in the back of my head, I almost speculated this on this. I was like, I bet two show up at the same time or something like that. Um, the, the reality is, is much worse, but, yeah. uh, we haven't gotten there yet. Um, so, so, so we take this expectation and what do we do with it? We deny the satisfaction of it that not only is taylor forced to sit out of this one so are we we're seeing it through eyes her eyes so we're removed from this action um the battle barely has any stakes and we're like hundreds of miles away from it and this is something that that not only taylor has never experienced every time she's seen an endbringer she's gotten to fight it but every time there's been an endbringer we the reader were right there in it and and we're denied that and it's frustrating and it's confusing and we don't really know what's going on because we've broken patterns and and so we move into this next scene where Taylor is is similarly frustrated and and we are right there with her emotionally because we're like, what is what is what is happening now? What's going on? Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun to watch her ex- ex- explicate her emotions because it's sort of what's going on with us actually as the reader. Yeah, it's 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 a kind of frustration uh, because Taylor is is disturbed by all of this. She's she's upset and and she goes to see Doctor Yamada. And Yamada helps her sort out her feelings uh, and it turns out that she's feeling disappointed that she couldn't participate um, in in the fight basically due to all the buildup. And she's disappointed that that it seems like they couldn't kill another inbringer because the Simmer escaped. And she admi- she admits that part of it is that she would like to personally be relevant to such a victory. Yeah. Uh, so, Matt, you know how much I love Jessica Yamada. Um, and of course, she's phenomenal in this scene but instead of focusing on her i really wanted to keep our focus on taylor here because we have time jumped a bit again um it's been a few months since the last attack and and we're seeing the result of taylor in this new world um a taylor that like as soon as she realizes that something is bothering her that she's having an emotional reaction to something does she lock it away in a compartment does she move it aside and and focus on something else no she goes to her therapist and she says look this is what i'm going through talk me through this thing and 
that is a huge growth for her. Um, she she deals with it and she understands it and and Jessica helps her through that and that's great. But th- th- that's huge. Yeah, and it also communicates to us that that this isn't the first time she's she's not just walking into her office. They've, yeah. They've clearly have some rapport now and some some way of interacting with each other, um, and 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 they they understand each other, and it's it's another way of showing that time is kind of beginning to pass in bigger and bigger chunks. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yamada also recommends that she focus on the tools and opportunities that she does have access to, and that's I think that's just like classic stress management advice is like if you're mm-hmm. worried about a thing that you don't have any control over, we'll focus on the things that you do have control over. And yeah. and I think that that kind of resettles and refocuses Taylor and she leaves this thing saying it's it's time to act. It's time to go forward with what Glenn asked me to do. Yeah, you're right. That's that's just ancient stoic wisdom. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, before she leaves, Yamada gives her a hug. And apparently this is a habit that they have now after. Taylor told Yamada that uh, she had good memories of specific hugs. Yeah, and there's going to be some more hugs in this arc, isn't there? Yeah, one more. One super awkward. Less good ones. Another really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the Rachel hug. Yeah, Rachel. I was thinking. I was thinking about the Gru hug. The Gru hug is yeah. It's just hard, Could you say that's a three beat of hugs? Maybe. Oh, well, does yeah. Taylor hug her, or does does Lisa hug her too? I don't remember. I think Lisa may hug her too. I think Lisa just smacks right. her. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah, we'll we'll sort it out. It's really important. So Taylor <laughs> looks at the world-ending countdown. She literally has a world-ending countdown. Of course, which I'm sure is psychologically healthy yeah. to have. Um, and starts looking over the database for established local villains that she wants to take out. Yeah. So. Uh, we basically just got one chapter in this chapter where Taylor got to like rest for a bit and enjoy her life as it, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we kind of learned that she's basically incapable of doing that in this chapter because even, even when she, like things were okay, she's super restless and super stressed and like needs to be doing something, got to do something, got to take action, have to go. And, and it's, it's different. It's more focused than it has been in the past, but, but like, I love that like one of the important things with character growth is is while your character's growing you you don't want to change them entirely like that you have your core fundamental things and then you have your your character flaws that you want them to work through but you don't want to change who they are entirely and 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 that's we're not changing Taylor we're just growing her Yeah yeah I I agree um I mean especially when we get to the time skip I I really like how character growth and development is handled there we'll, we'll get there though yeah so, so yeah 25.3 begins and again we've basically skipped from taylor thinking like oh yes i want I, I need to do something i need to take action to all of the lead up from that point to actually taking action has passed and now she's on her stakeout on the roof across for the street from her her target her her villain target that she wants to go after for her big her big, highly visible score. Uh, score. Uh, so she's been on this long, boring stakeout in the snow uh, with her box of bugs. Uh, by the way, I want fan art of her her winter costume because um, I think that would look cool. Now, if we had a fan art contest for every time you asked for fan art of something, we, we just we just never stop having them. Then then let's never stop having okay. them. Okay. Well, okay. Fine. 
fan art forever. Um, I, I would like to see an interpretation of that costume as well. I think it yeah. it sounds cool. Yeah. So she's she's also um, she's really annoyed that she has to consent to these super frequent check ins. I think it's every five minutes. Yeah. That that are required by the director before he would approve her plan. Yeah. I mean. Check-ins are kind of standard operating procedure for stakeouts. I know like five minutes is kind of annoying, but when the person leading the stakeout is a murderer on probation, maybe like I think it's fair. Um, and she gets to be alone. So she she's wanted to be alone for so long because she can't go anywhere by herself. So Taylor, right. stop complaining. And now she gets to be alone in the snow with her plastic Alexandria lunchbox staring at her. Mocking her with its eyes. Uh, it's it's ironic. It's an ironic lunchbox, Scott. Kind of like how serial killers ironically keep trophies of their victims. <laughs> I'm not sure I've laughed harder than any time in this book than when I read this this passage. Because it's so great. It's so amazing. And uh-huh. like the image of her just like looking at this lunchbox... <laughs> And saying, this is ironic, isn't it? And it fits with my camouflage. And then she's just forced to look at it for eight hours and just be like, oh, yeah, I did that. That's what I did. <laughs> I killed this girl. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's so absurd. <laughs> what were you thinking, Taylor? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that compartmentalization. I'm sure in the moment she bought it, she was like, oh, yeah. I'm not I'm not thinking about the fact that this girl probably had a mother. I'm just getting a lunchbox. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, needless to say, all that time aboard her rooftop is driving her nuts. And we learned that she's been spending her time writing letters with her bugs uh, and, and then mailing them with her bugs. <laughs> Which is insane. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know. I couldn't even think of how you would work that out. How would you like, are you dipping the bugs in ink and then like having them crawl? Like, what does the font look like of those letters? Uh, maybe, maybe she just uses a, you know, manipulates a pen with them. I don't know. That seems really difficult, but of course Taylor can probably handle it. Yeah, it probably looks fine. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine it looks really creepy, but it's saying really nice things. That's, yeah. that's what my head, my head canon is that. Yeah, no, I think you're. It, she probably doesn't realize it looks creepy at all, and it probably looks really creepy. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably all this spidery, gothic handwriting, yeah. <laughs> Bug writing. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Revel calls in, uh, and apparently Revel is her advocate here, and that's that's good to know. Yeah, and and, and I think it's, it's interesting that we see that, like, we talked about this disconnect between capes and non-capes within the PRT and the protectorate organization. And, and Weaver's kind of orchestrated things to make, to extend this argument. Like she's gotten the cape on her side and the non-capes not. And it's like, she's able to convince the soldiers because they know what it's like to be her. And it's the administration that she just can't seem to win over. Yeah. Yeah. So the wards now start arriving for the planned attack on the villains and local street traffic will gradually be shut down over the next few minutes, and then the attack will commence. Yeah, and, and and thus begins what is written basically like a military exercise almost. Um, we, we've seen coordinated attacks in this book before, but I don't think we've ever seen something with like the level of precision and organization that we see here. I think it's 
it's really fascinating to dive into the text here and just observe how differently written this kind of stuff is from a lot of the other action sequences we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess the only thing it really, that really comes to mind is when they attacked, um, the group that Othala and, and Victor were with in, in the sense that they just kind of ambushed them with overwhelming force and had them beaten yeah. almost before the battle started. But this is a little bit different from that because, that she's not able to use her bugs in that like all out aggressive borderline lethal fashion. She's, she's just doing stuff like, well, yeah, not to skip ahead too much, but she's, she's, she's only hampering them with her bugs and, and the, the wards are only allowed to yeah. use their powers in a non-lethal way. Um, but they still, nonetheless, they still defeat them overwhelmingly. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, they, Weaver's swarm starts to emerge and she's been organizing it all day in the surrounding buildings. And she breaks in the front door and then she sends her bugs into the air ducts of the apartment building. Um, which And, and she has a, a beat of nostalgia about the boardwalk. Kind of, she's, she's basically spying on these, these villains and thinking about what it was like to live that way and, and remembering it fondly. Yeah, yeah. And we're directly contrasting that moment with her now on literally the other side of that where she's now uh going to bug those people where they live yeah <laughs> bugs get it <laughs> bugs so the, the target is topsy and he's a villain who has lately become more successful and more vicious like okay <laughs> i know this guy's power makes his name make sense but i feel like with a name like that, you're like intentionally setting someone up to appear as as non-threatening as possible. And I, I think I think that's very intentional, though. I think th- this is not just about defeating. Um, I think there's never any doubt within this entire action sequence that the good guys are going to win. I think the stakes are how they're going to win. And if Taylor is going to get in trouble for breaking the rules again. Uh, y- yes. Um, but and I think like naming this guy topsy and making it this kind of silly kind of name i think just reinforces that 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 this is not an endbringer battle this is not a battle against this a, a, a lethal terrible foe that's gonna kill you in a moment's notice this is something entirely different yeah I, I agree with that it does become for me a little bit tense when when watch shows up and everyone's kind of like oh this this wasn't what we planned for yeah. and, and some of them even want to abort just because watch is there um but I think Taylor's confidence is actually justified because she knows what she's doing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So the bugs make their way into the villain's apartment and they start tying all the winter wear together, cutting clothing apart, smearing capsaicin on things, stealing and hiding phones. Wasps hang out on gun grips and bugs cut open plastic drug bags. They basically just ruin everything. It's fantastic. Yeah, this is like uh, interrupting that chili dinner times like a thousand. Yeah, thousand. Yeah. I had chili today, Matt. It's delicious. Yeah, it's pumpkin chili. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah. Um, I want some. <laughs> so Tecton, Grace, Annex, and Cuff are all going to be the uh, the wards who end up helping her out. And they so so as the um, villains figure out what's going on and then try to flee comedically, Weaver is able to listen in on their whole exit plan and then orders spike strips put in their planned exit path. And Annex deconstructs the staircase under them as they walk. So there's all these almost like home alone level like the the bumbling villains are trying to escape while while dropping all their drugs down the stairs and 
making their way to the garage and then spike spike strips immediately taking out two of their vehicles before they even get, get anywhere. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's delightful actually. It's, it's, it's just a fun little beat down at least for this part of the battle. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's like, you're just like watching people who are good at their jobs, be good at their jobs and everything's like going according to plan. And sometimes it's fun when you just, see someone lay out a plan and everything's working and they're like just they're 10 steps ahead of everything and things are going great um and it's just kind of fun to see that every so often yeah definitely um but then out of the car steps watch the scary mercenary a grab bag cape like circus that sums uh sums up to a scary opponent yeah and of course just because things go go well doesn't mean you don't need something in a story to complicate those things. So here's yeah. here's our, our, our new element to make things a little more serious. Yeah, I think it makes this fight more interesting. Yeah. Um, so Topsy inverts gravity in the vicinity of Weaver and Cuff, and they manage to hang on to a fire escape to avoid falling into the sky. Um, and, and like I mentioned, the, it, can, it still continues to be comedic, even though yeah. you've introduced this element of, of watch, because you, you have this thing where... Now people are shooting at them and bullets are bouncing off of the of the iron around them. And Weaver is speaking over the gunshots into her microphone, talking to the HQ, going, all, all good, no problem, go pathetic, nothing to worry yeah. about. Yeah, everything's fine here now. How are you? <laughs> um, no, I, I, I agree. And, and I think, like, I know you said that you thought it gets the stakes get a little ramped up when things go wrong. And I think they do a little bit. But I, I, th- I still think this whole battle maintains this air of half seriousness where again it's not gonna be will our good guys win it's that's Mm -hmm. not what it's gonna be it's it's what what is she gonna do and what are the consequences of that gonna be and that's why like the 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 moments of stress for me in the battle are not taylor fighting these guys it's every time taylor calls in on the radio and says no, we're going to we're we're good. Like everything's fine. Every time she lies, every time the people, the wards under her command um say, "Hey, they told us we can't do this." And she said, "No, no, no. No, it's good. We're going to go. We have to go now. We have to do this." And that's that's the stakes to me. Yeah, I I I was afraid that where this was leading was she was going to get one of her wards, you know, injured badly probably. Yeah. At, at worst injured badly. I doubted somebody was would get killed here. But I thought that would happen and then she would feel really bad about it and then she'd get in big trouble for it. Um, but I think actually at this point she's just competent enough that that wouldn't happen anymore. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I don't think I ever thought about it being at the level of someone is going to get hurt or die. But um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think you, well, you were probably just reading the subtext more accurately because it, that indeed does not happen. Um, yeah. So the villains... Um, so, so yeah, so first she uses the flight pack to send Cuff up and then over the roof of the building that they're on the side of in order to take out Mokshow's minions, which are basically basically telekinetically animated trucks. Uh, and then Weaver <laughs> goes through a hole in the wall created by Annex so that she can ambush them too. The villains then retreat a bit and Watch surgically kills all the bugs that she's been using to spy on them. Revel starts to push back at this point, no longer her advocate, uh, basically telling her to pull back so the grownups can sweep in and handle things. Um, and Taylor keeps insisting, no, we've got it under control. Finally, Revel agrees only because the protector can't be there quickly enough. Yeah. And, and, and Weaver's kind of whole argument here is like, 
what do you mean it's not safe for us? Like, you sent us to fight Behemoth. And I think this gives a really interesting window in how the Protectorate and the PRT views the wards program in general. Um, we learned last week that the original goal of the wards was to be this safe place, this fresh start, this place where kids could learn to control their powers in, in a safe, supported environment um, where they could maybe then potentially graduate to the, the big boys. Um, but then, of course, the endbreakers come and, and they don't really have a choice. They have to use them because it's that or we could possibly all die. Um, but I still think there's a core of that general idea, that general mission statement of the wards is that this is not supposed to be an organization that puts people in danger unless we absolutely need it. And in this situation against a villain named Topsy and, and his, his two guys putting children in danger in this situation is not worth the risk. Um, when we have adults that could come in here and do this, and, and and we'd feel much better about it. So I think that shows like the conflicted status of what the wards are and what the wards do and what the wards represent in this organization. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I don't have anything to add really. So the villains are, are then blocked in their retreat uh, by the efforts of Golem and Tecton, who are using their powers in concert to block off the road. The villains flee into a nearby restaurant, and the database tells them that this is a criminal front. Weaver. Uh, we were from the video uh, directly <laughs> calls the restaurant and convinces them to figure out how to kick these guys out. Yeah. And the PRT is pissed about this. Oh, the director's so mad because they made a deal with bad guys. Yeah. Um, and, and it's that you see Taylor's really frustrated in this moment because it's that kind of rigidity that really frustrates her. Um, but like, again, again, I, I understand like Taylor did it and it works, but, you understand, I understand the PRT situation here. Like the idea that like, if you're seen to make deals with the villains that undermines your status as an authority law enforcement figure in, in the public eye. And not only does it damage your credibility as an organization with the general public, but it also makes it more difficult to deal with villains in the future. So I, I get why the PRT is mad about this thing. I do. Um, and I think that's, that's like, how Taylor can live in this world. That's, that's halfway between those two things. Like she, she talked about last arc that, that she is not the goody two shoes ward. That's always going to follow the rules. And she's not the villain anymore. She's living in this between space where she can make these deals and she can make these decisions that the PRT as a whole cannot. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm getting these flashes of training day suddenly where (laughs) you have you have especially toward the beginning of the movie when you don't really realize how bad Denzel Washington's character is. He's he's framing everything as like, oh, no, I mean, this is just how it's done. You've got to You've got to have these personal connections. You've got to you've got to do these kinds of things or you'll never make any headway with the with the bad guys, with the villains. Um, And of course, that's all sort of. Uh, a cover for the fact that he is actually completely corrupt. Um, but, but yeah, I like he, I think, I think that's, that's actually a true fact about, about law enforcement is you, you make more ground if you're willing to sort of go partly undercover, but also the guy who's going partly undercover can't really let his boss, the police chief know exactly what he's doing right? or, or he'll get in trouble. Right. Like the director has to be pissed off about this. Yeah. It is it is his job to be mad about this. Like yeah. he really like 
he could secretly be happy about it. We don't actually know, but like <laughs> as as a representative of this authority structure, he can't not be mad about it. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, so this so it works though. The restaurant employee successfully kicks them out. And at this point, um, the uh, the villains are, are broken mentally and, and they just surrender. And it's only moments uh, before they, they they just, you know, completely surrender and uh, and the wards take him in. So do you think, Matt, that this like strategy of like giving people a taste of warmth and safety and comfort and then just violently removing it from them is like some sort of psychological weapon that would completely demoralize a population? I don't know. I don't know what you're, don't know what you're referring to, I Scott. Probably won't come up anymore in this no. story. I hope not, because that sounds mean. Yeah, it's really mean. Who would yeah. do, who would who would write such a thing? I don't know. So a bit later, uh, they've got Macho in the interrogation room, and Weaver sends in her swarm uh, while while she thinks no one is paying attention to try to convince Macho to join the wards. Yeah, and, and we see then that that that's Taylor's plan all along that. That it's about it's about weeding out the capes who are not willing to help in the end of the world and recruiting those that will. And again, another interesting comparison is we we, we know this this giant organization, this clandestine organization that is seeming to do a very similar thing, as we'll learn more later in this arc. That's right. So we were talks about, like you said, the two groups, the, the the groups working to prepare for the end of the world and the group who are relaxing. And uh, neither group will be on her side if she stays on this path. She notices that she's behaving like Arms Master did back in the day, and that disturbs her. Yeah, that's a very interesting beat that that she realizes it it disturbs her. And it got me thinking about the beat that she's talking about is when they first meet the first time, right? She's de- she's with Lung. He swoops in and, and defeats Lung and then tells her, join the wards, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think, like, he probably like legitimately was like, Hey, you should join the wards. Like, I don't think he was trying to manipulate her. I mean, I, th- he did some manipulation. He was trying to manipulate things so he could get full credit for lung. I know that happens, but like, I don't, I, I don't think like she's saying, I'm going to ask you to join the wards because I know you will never say yes to that. But really that just moves you into a position that I want you to be in. I don't know if that's what he was doing. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, if anything, his his lie detector gave him like a bad read, yeah, and it led him to pushing a little bit harder than he than he might could have. But um, yeah, I, I think Taylor is actually such a um, what's the word, um, stubborn person that um, it's I I don't put a lot of blame on arms master actually for how that went down yeah i mean and and obviously i think he does much worse things later um, yeah yeah but that to think of that interaction specifically uh jumped out at me and of course go ahead ahead. i was gonna say like i remember you specifically comparing him to like uh the you know the tick or or some other like really yeah positive good role model hero in that scene it is it isn't till a bit later when he starts getting really furious with her because she's being an idiot um, <laughs> that, that we start to kind of see the dark side of him. And at that, even at that time, he's rather justified. It's not until the Leviathan fight that he really does yeah. a, a really terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think this, this idea of the two groups is kind of 
an evolution of that cops and robbers ideology that we've been talking about since the beginning of this book. We've it kind of we've moved past it. Um, that patience for that kind of thing is seemingly gone now, or at least that's what Taylor's arguing. And and it's tough to it's tough to say if that's like if if the PRT actually agrees with that statement. I I don't think they do. I think the PRT would love to continue the cops and robbers type game, um, but Taylor wants us to have moved beyond that, and uh, a, a, because it allows her to manipulate people. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I. I I like how I like how their interaction ends, though. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> Weaver, what? Can I ask you something personal? Yes, of course. She opened her mouth and closed it. She stuck her hands in her pockets, then glanced at the windows, which were partially obscured uh, with half-closed blinds. Finally, she spoke. Would you please, please go fuck yourself upside down and backwards? <laughs> which, which, which is hilarious, although it does make me wonder, like, was she really going to ask something different or was that just to build up to telling her off? I, I, I don't know. Personally, I think she was. And then she changed her mind. Yeah. I think she was starting to get swayed by her argument and then got mad that she realized she was getting swayed and then backed yeah. off. Yeah. But I mean, we don't, we don't really know what ends up happening with, with Macho, right? Like, it, no. And that's, yeah. I mean, we'll get into the time jump stuff, but one of the things that I, did not like was that we spent a lot of time setting up these conflicts, setting up the conflicts between Taylor and, and the PRT structure. And, you know, again, I'm making this critique without having read anything past this. So it's very possible that even though we jump forward two years, we will see these, the the threads of these conflicts continue going forward. But it feels like we set up this thing with like the the director here is going to be your enemy. Um, And even the stuff we're about to talk about here, in this chapter and we kind of just drop it. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I I don't know what's going to happen, so that could be wrong, but that's how it felt. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's just, it's good to talk about here because it's one of the, the potential pitfalls of getting into a situation where you have to skip through a whole lot of time really quickly because you, you, you have to establish characters, but then you kind of have to leave them behind um, because yeah, like we, we can't go at the same pace we were going at before where we, we fully explore this new director and all of his issues and why he's the way he is it's like, no, we're, we're, we're going to skip ahead again. And that's, that's what we're doing now. Cause the, the main thing that we're trying to follow needs that, that time, that time jumping to happen. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that like we needed a deep dive into who this director was as a person and this continued conflict between the two of them. I don't, I don't necessarily think we needed a a, a stretched out version of that, but I, it felt like we needed an end to it or a conclusion to it, or at least a a spot where it's very clear. We're going to extend that into two years from now. And I didn't, I didn't feel like we got it in this arc at least. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, definitely we're not quite to that time jump yet, but the way it's played is, it's it's almost like he's while those play you know he's he's toying with us on some level by by making us a little bit confused about what's happened and not not letting us realize the time jump has happened till till yeah. we're yeah. a little bit into it but yeah. we're not quite there yet so um yeah so the the um the director turns out was actually uh looking in via the video monitors and and saw what she did um, although I don't think he heard necessarily what was offered. So that that's interesting. 
They butt heads a bit, and he insists that there will be no compromise with her, but perhaps a balance can be obtained. He says that she won't follow the rules ever, and he'll have to continually devote energy to keeping her in check. It only took three PRT directors to figure out Taylor. Um, I, I think this is a pretty accurate read, though, that that she's a person that's very quick to demand compromise, but is often unwilling to follow through on her end of that compromise. And I think mm-hmm. this is this is something we've been saying about Taylor, that that when she thinks something is right is the correct thing to do, she is almost 100% convinced that that is the correct thing to do. So the idea of compromising on the 100% correct move to make is absurd. I mean, and, and that makes sense from a logical standpoint. If you if you are 100% convinced that you are right, why would you give up any of that? Um, right. And and so, yeah, it's like compromising with her is stupid because she's not going to do it. But but that balance that but understanding, knowing that she's going to do this thing and, and being able to steer that in a direction that that everyone wins is mutually beneficial yeah yeah sometimes i feel like taylor thinks that compromise means like you do, compromise do what i want yes yeah right <laughs> you compromise your values and i do what i want um just do me a favor try not to murder me like you did the other three direct directors he winked <laughs> this guy the, this guy does not fuck around yeah the, the wink is so creepy uh, the and wink the, like, caps like, it yeah 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 like okay, like it would have been great if guy. he had just said, but he winked. It's just yeah, yeah beautiful, right? beautiful. So then, like she, after this interaction, she kind of feels like she needs to escalate for some reason. So she then kind of like intrudes on the conversation with the mayor, so she can take credit for this, which she wasn't supposed to do. Um, <laughs> she said then, many times, "I don't want credit." Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I'm, I'm now just taking credit because I know you don't want me to take credit. Yeah. And the mayor tells her to smile more, um, which I'm sure. And, and then she does, which I'm sure just looks like, you so know, weird. Yeah. Right. She mentions that she has more plans like this one lined up seven or eight major targets could be taking taken out in the next two weeks. She says, yeah, this, I mean, talk about proving the director's point immediately like yeah. like everything he said she's like yep i'm just gonna do i have my own prerogative i'm gonna do this stuff um and you're just gonna have to be willing to roll with it and and uh stand on the other side of the seesaw to balance me because <laughs> yep. i'm doing what i'm doing yep so as as the chapter ends she, she thinks about how her real goal is to get all the mock shows of the world into interrogation rooms so they can be turned to the right side for the end of the world. Yeah, and this is, I mean, the beat she says here is, if anyone thought I was cleaning up the city, they were wrong. And that's, Taylor's not playing cops and robbers. She's not playing heroes and villas. Villains, she's playing humans and extinction. And cleaning up the streets, protecting the innocent. These these things are too local and too short term for her now. And that's a change because, like, that was that was her motivation for Brockton Bay. That was, I am cleaning up the streets. I am making my territory a better place. I am protecting my people. And that's not what she cares about anymore. Um, she once again has, has selected her goal and she's going to do what she needs to do to get to her goal. This one is just bigger than any of the other ones have been. Yep. Yep. So then we move on into 25.4. And an indeterminate time later, Glenn calls, uh, sorry, Taylor calls Glenn for some emergency advice. 
She's apparently just come back from a six-hour patrol, and now she's supposed to be on TV suddenly. Her political enemies want her to come off poorly. He advises her to be engaging and focus on her camaraderie with the wards. I, I, the way this chapter opens, Matt, is so good, because it just starts with, Touche, PRT. You got me. Touche. And you're like, <laughs> wait, what? what happened did like did she finally break too many rules is she going back to jail or throwing into her to the birdcage what is happening and no it's it's actually worse than all that it's it's so much worse yeah 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 and and again to the prt's credit this was a really clever move because taylor sucks at this kind of stuff she's so bad at it and it's it's it reminded me of of the hunger games where you have katniss who's terrible at this kind of stuff and what was the other guy's name? Peta. Yeah, there you go. I, re- I regret knowing that. Yeah, it's like the Hunger Games, only, you know, good. Yeah. yeah. Hunger Games burn. Um, I, 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 I love that this part of this is my favorite, though, that Tekton is like going down the list and trying to give each of his wards advice. And he gets to Taylor and he's just like, Weaver, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But like, I've really, I, I've, I've gone the extra mile for you and you've done a lot to me return, but, but yeah. please, please, Weaver, I don't even know. I don't, just don't fuck me over. Please don't embarrass right. me. Don't make the, the, the extra mile I've gone for you make me look bad by your behavior. It's, yeah. it's so great. Right. And, it, and it, he's almost resigned because he's, he, he almost, he, you have to wonder if he appreciates you know, we've talked a lot before about how capes are all screwed up, but some some capes appreciate that fact more literally than others. Like like Taylor realizes that Rachel is is screwed up in a specific way, and it's possible that Tekton realizes that Weaver is screwed screwed up in a specific way too. Where he's like he's like, you know, if if they say the wrong thing to her, she's just gonna. <laughs> go off at him and there's yeah. nothing there's nothing i can do to stop it and there's not, nothing she can do to control it so yeah, it's it's another reflection of that that compromise conversation right with the director that tecton understands that you know she's taylor's gonna taylor and yeah, <laughs> i can ask but at the end of the day she's gonna do what she wants to do yep so all the other wards look perfect and camera ready and they're all reacting. I like that they're all reacting to the stress of preparing for this media event differently. And then they're all ushered on a stage to talk to OJ and Coffee. Matt, I don't think it was possible for me to hate a human being as fast as I hated <laughs> OJ and Coffee. I hated them so much from their names. It's yeah. like, fuck this. I hate these people. Yeah. Did we did we make an analogy to which one is which inbringer? <laughs> Wait, what? I mean, there's three of them, Scott. Oh, so that means, yeah, of course. Right. So Taylor is just absolutely peak Taylor here. Um, <laughs> the the talk show hosts are just kind of being normal talk show hosts, and in, in her constant running in inner monologue is just like, that wasn't funny. Why are these humans laughing? <laughs> like it, it uh, comes off as so so Taylor. Yeah, it's so great, and and I want to I want to talk about this at the end of the chapter when when we get the the turn here but this this moment in particular and and all the other kind of funny beats we've had on the rest of 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 the chapter of of the arc like feels like we're specifically trying to hit these funny moments we're specifically trying to um make 
the readers laugh so the turn digs all the more and 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 i think of course the the turn happens at the end of this which is almost like a comedy routine played out uh on the page where it's mm-hmm. just like everything's everything's kind of going wrong like all these people are awkward on stage like i think tecton's really the only one that's like good at this right um and and it's just it's so funny yeah right yeah there's just a few beats i have to pull out where um i don't dislike you weaver joe said it's bugs i don't like i'm not nervous thank you good i said then in an attempt to recover the clumsy sentence i added i'm glad (laughs) can you imagine what that sounded like like i i don't know how long the beat between good and i'm glad was but it's got to be seconds like awkward seconds yeah i imagine it being just long enough to to be off-putting yes yeah like someone else is about to start talking and then she says i'm glad yeah and and so you just mentioned that Tekton was the only one who's good at this and and i think this is very you know kind of revealing so we have a are you excited joe asked oh man was i ever starting to dislike her i'm really excited tecton said the response caught me off guard was he lying for the sake of appearances or was it honest how could someone be excited when the end of the world was nigh did he not believe it was coming whatever the answer was i felt oddly disappointed in him (laughs) taylor and it's yeah it's like it's like taylor he's He's just he's playing the game correctly. Yeah. Just give him a break. Like like what in your mind do you answer correctly to the question are you excited? Do you want do you want him to say excited? The fucking world's about to end. No, I'm not excited. Yeah, that's going to go yeah. real well. Are you excited about fighting inbringers? Are you excited about this? <laughs> What's there to be excited about? <laughs> yeah. This whole thing is crazy. Yeah, right. Uh he's playing the game and he's doing it well and yeah. she can't understand that. I think that's her thing, though, is like she 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 is not a game player. Yeah, she never has been. And and I think it I mean, it makes sense that she finds that disappointing because that's exactly the kind of thing that she would find disappointing. But that's I mean, that that's a character flaw. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, Um, it comes up uh, in in the conversation that Golem is apparently the most promising new member of the wards. No, that makes me happy for a little Theo. Yeah. that I guess they appreciate his power. Maybe they're just trying to build him up. I don't know. Um, but yeah. I guess the message is clear that, you know, being raised by a Nazi only to be abandoned by that Nazi and, and an hour of stress is the correct way to handle someone, I guess. It's yeah. Like, that's a clear message here. Yeah. So Crusader was, was right and fully justified. <laughs> no. Um, and uh, <laughs> Taylor continues saying, uh, yeah, he's like Tecton. Grace and Annex are too, but to a lesser degree. <laughs> he's genuinely good-natured and kind. When everyone, when everything starts falling apart, he's still there, naturally courageous. So that's that's nice of you to uh, rank your friends so clearly there, <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> and Wanton's like, what the fuck? <laughs> you just left me off yeah. the list. Um, but like again, there's this hilarious this moment where Taylor like is so bad at this, but she hears Glenn's words. And latches on 
to I have to show camaraderie. I have to, and, and the the closest person I've been to is Golem. So I'm just going to like aggressively keep talking up Golem. And it's yeah. like every time the conversation moves to something else, she's like, "Oh yeah, but Golem is really good at this." And it's like to the point where they ask her about a romantic relationship because it's like she's like really pushing him as being awesome really hard. And it's yeah. just it's just funny. It's very funny. Yeah. I like so since we're almost at the end of the comedy part of this, I, I like how funny it manages to be without um without that humor being really at the at the expense of Taylor's character. It's yeah. she never she never breaks character. Like it's never a it's never a flanders flanderization. Um it's it's just very organically putting this, you know, warlord of Brockton Bay turned certain wannabe superheroine and putting her in the most fish out of water imaginable situation and just letting that play out yeah yeah you're right but uh before they can begin their powers demonstration their phones all buzz and there's a possible s-class attack in progress in japan and here we go and and cuff says please be the seamurg grace put an arm around cuff's sh- shoulders that may be the first time in history anyone's ever thought that she's right too even the Seamurg would be better than this. So then it arrives. They see it on the TV. She describes the new Inbringer, black limbed with silver, a perfect sphere with arms and legs and, and a tigerish head coming out of it. He uses a time acceleration attack that roves around him. Some capes appear to fight him, including Eidolon, and many are killed quite quickly as they mistime the movements of his attacks. Weaver heads outside to the dragon craft to join the fight, and then we learn that Kansu also teleports shortly after the strongest capes catch up and do a tiny amount of damage. He teleports to a new target and, and we realize that this is two attacks two months apart and Taylor thinks if they were keeping to their usual rules, it promised a fifth in bringer waiting in the wings. Yeah. So, so there we go. Arc arc 25 for the most part has been a pretty happy chapter. Um, we've got lots of joking, a lot of comedic beats some of the most funny moments in the story we've talked about. Um, and then suddenly here at the end of this one, we get we get the turn and we realize that the Endbringers have been doing to humanity what Taylor did to Topsy and his crew, lulling them into this false sense of security. And then the second they achieved warmth or safety, stripping that from them and making them so morally defeated that they almost just want to give up. And that's exactly what's happening here, that that. Uh, you had this moment of victory and then suddenly all this is taken away from you and things are worse. Things are yeah. way worse. Yep. Yep. And, and then we, again, we, we go into 25.5 and, and we've skipped ahead for basically three days and Kansu has been moving around for those three days, teleporting across the world, hitting many, many cities and towns which has just got to be absolutely nerve wracking if you think about it. Like you, you, you know that this, this thing is just popping all over the world and you're like, well, I guess I'm going to go to bed now and, uh, uh, hope that, uh, wake up. Yeah. And there, I mean, there's this, this, this extreme hopelessness, how every single one of the wards is just in costume 24 seven. Cause they don't know when they're going to have to go out and fight. They don't know what to do. They can't do anything. Only the the really fast, powerful capes can get there in time, and it's just it's just abject hopelessness. Mm-hmm. We're, we're fucked. Yep. So Taylor chats with Tecton about how she's always made choices to help people, 
whether those choices look good or bad. But she feels like even as she gets more and more power, she feels more and more helpless. Yeah, uh, this is about as as textual as you can get in a story without just like literally smacking the reader in the head and yelling. This is one of the themes of my book to them. Um, yeah. And it doesn't feel overwrought, though. No, but, yeah. no, not at all. I, I didn't mean that in a bad way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I and it's so fitting. Like we're, we're going to sit here in this chapter and we're going to learn all about Cauldron's plan. Well, partially about Cauldron's plan, but the overall idea, the idea that they're going to save the world no matter what the cost is and and then here at the beginning of of this chapter we have taylor taylor who the entirety of this book has been on this quest for power not not for power's sake she's not like a a bad guy like that i think that tecton literally says that to her you're not a bad guy but 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 power for good power to help people power to stop the bad people from bullying innocents and she's made choices and made sacrifices at the altar of that power, and she's gotten it. And she's right now the most powerful she's ever been. And and where does that leave her? Helpless. She says she feels helpless. And I think that's the thing about escalation, and that's what the, the, the story is saying, that in this arms race, it's never one-sided. The more power you amass, the more power the other side has to get to catch up. And we've seen this throughout Worm time and time again. Every time one start, side starts winning too much, the other side is forced to escalate, and that's that's exactly what's happened here. That uh, congratulations, you killed Behemoth, you did it. But here's Kansu, and he's worse. Do you feel more powerful now? Do you feel safer now? Um, and that's 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 Worm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So so she finally kind of decides to rest. So she goes and lies down in her bedroom, but she wakes up with someone that she mistakes for her mother standing over her. Yeah, and um, I, 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 I guess I heard that this was a a pretty popular fan theory for a while that uh, Contessa was Taylor's mom, um, and 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 I so I guess if, if that's true that this this feels like Wild Bo kind of referencing that and like saying ha gotcha, that's not really um, honestly like this was something I thought about putting in a speculation a little bit ago, but it never felt right for me. Um, it felt like against the themes and against what they were trying to do with Taylor. So I don't, th- I didn't think Wild Bill would go there. I think it would be like a meaningless gotcha in the end and, and not fit with what we were trying to do with the character. So I never made it a formal speculation, but there were, there were days when I thought about it and I was like, ah, that would be really interesting, but I didn't go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I never, this one never really had much cachet with me, so I'm, I'm happy to to let it pass by. <laughs> um, yeah, so the woman walks through a cauldron portal, and Taylor makes her way through to a special chamber populated with the leadership of the Undersiders, the Protectorate, the Thanda, the Birdcage, Faultline's crew, Cauldron, and other individuals and groups who we might not recognize at this point. What a party! Everyone, but everyone is invited, but no one, yeah. no one in Port Chicago, only Taylor. Sorry, yeah. everyone else in the city. You suck. Right. And that's just because she was an undersider. Yeah. yeah. So the doctor opens up the meeting saying that uh, she is, is uh, um, she's called Dr. Doc, uh, sorry. Um, yeah. So everyone, basically the, the reason that the meeting has been called is so that everyone uh, will cooperate toward the goal of fighting the new threat. 
Um, the doctor says the inbringers are indeed a puzzle that is separate from the other puzzles when uh, when Tattletale kind of challenges her on that. Yeah, it's a great way of saying, OK, this thing is, is real bad, but it's totally different from this whole bad thing that we're trying to stop. Yeah. Yay. Um, I like Tattletale throughout this whole section. I think she's really good and she makes a lot of amazing like speeches trying to call people out on their shit. And uh, it works a little bit, but it's everyone. Everyone's being really reserved and not wanting to play any of their cards and not do anything. Um, and, and which, of course, frustrates the hell out of poor Taylor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. She so she's she's saying the stuff like uh, we can't bullshit around about secrecy and all that. We need to dust off our weapons and the schemes that we've been keeping on the back burner and hit that motherfucker. More than half of us have cards we're keeping up our sleeves for a rainy day. Someone needs to bite the bullet and play their card. And then we need to talk about who plays the next card when number five comes around. Because there will be a fifth or a fourth if you count Behemoth or not. So much secrecy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this it's really interesting because we're getting to that theme of cooperation here where you know, for example, Cauldron is here saying, you know, we're going to help facilitate cooperation between these groups, but but we can't participate or play our cards. Uh, the, the threat that we're fighting against is far worse than this inbringer. Uh, Marquis indicates that he knows exactly what the threat is, but Dr. Mother assures him that revealing that information would, would be a very bad idea. And then I get really mad and cry because we were so close to figuring out what the fuck is going on and no one will talk to each other. I hate you, Marquis. I'm just going to yeah. call you Marquis from now on. That'll be your punishment. <laughs> what a terrible punishment. It's awful. I mean, it's just terrible. Who would say it that way? So the, the topic of bartering power for favors comes up. And uh, predictably, the first offer is Glass de Guignet asking for 100,000 parahuman corpses um, in exchange for helping. Most of the people present react in the same manner, kind of after. <laughs> Uh, shocked and, and horrified but dr mother is just like okay yeah we can do that it'll, it'll take a little time yeah and that's uh, i think that's the ugly truth at the center of collagen right that individual lives are so meaningless to them in the big picture um which which i mean it's a fairly utilitarian perspective right if you if you mm-hmm. if you trade a hundred thousand people and save billions that's fair trade right matt right yeah yeah absolutely matt did you not read my note <laughs> oh i'm sorry <laughs> It says, please don't say yes, Matt. Oh, yeah. No, I, I see it now. <laughs> um, y- yeah, I mean, it's 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 the the, the hyper inflated version of Taylor's and justify the means reasoning that she is sometimes fond of is Cauldron is just like, look, if if you know, if everyone in the world dies, then those hundred thousand people are going to die anyway. So got to got to bite the bullet. Yeah. Which is really fun to say when you're not one of the 100,000 people. Yeah, definitely. So Marquis wants out of the birdcage and, and he's trying to make a deal, but Chevalier won't have it. And then it says, uh, your daughter was a mental wreck the last time anyone outside of the birdcage saw her. There are too many dangerous individuals in there. She, Chevalier said, pointing in the direction of the woman with the shadowy pet with the massive bird skull, has killed thousands of people. There's nothing compared to what some of the in- individuals in the birdcage have done. We'd be letting the the wolves run free again in the hopes that they deal with the lion. Yeah, which is of course like exactly what Taylor wants to do. Yeah. Um to to a, a different kind of extent. But that's I mean, she's she's trying to recruit the wolves to attack the lion. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because Chevalier does have a, a, a new vision for the, for the protectorate, but it's not, not really what Taylor's vision is. I don't think. No, not so quite. Marcos tries to deal directly with dragon because she's the one who's in charge of the birdcage, um, who actually seems to find some appeal in this idea, even though Chevalier's is fairly insistent that it not be done. Yeah. Um, it's like the, the, the way wild Bo writes this, um, like he continues to play with dragon's language to appeal specifically to us, the reader, cause we know things. Um, so when dragon says, I have to say no, um, to a person <laughs> who doesn't know that comes off as just, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to say no. But mm-hmm. of course we know it's, I literally have to say no. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Apologetically. Yeah. The, the Thanda reveal that they feel that they owe Taylor a favor for helping Fearsay, uh, though he's dead now. Yeah. The poor crazy dude sacrificed himself. Yeah. Bye crazy dude. Yeah. We, we loved you, man. Did, did we? I mean, I kind of, I, I was interested in him as a character. No, he was, he was my favorite. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, more nag the woman with the giant black pet with the skull for a head is the warlord of libya and at first rejects all offers but ends up accepting five thousand lives in exchange for her help i mean it's not a hundred thousand so hooray yeah 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 i mean i think the important part here is that that sinks in with us and and also taylor is just how cavalier these people are being with trading lives Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it's, it's very easy to say that, that 5,000 lives makes up for the thousands more that could die if you don't help. But, but who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide who the lives are? Who gets to decide who gets to live and who gets to die? Who makes those decisions? And, and that's when this, this wonderfully fair utilitarian perspective kind of falls apart in my opinion. But, and I, I, I don't, importantly, I don't think it's just my opinion. I think it's something that the book is, is wanting us to consider and wanting us to confront with yes this this on one hand seems like it would be a fair trade but on the other is that the type of people we want to be right yeah the book is really good at creating scenarios like this where you have a a really terrible deal on the table and and you want to condemn cauldron in this case completely you know without reservation and then you have to be like okay well what is the alternative? No one is cooperating here. And you've just, you, you came close to buying Glass de Guinea's help. And now you've bought more Nag's help, who is, we see later quite strong. Yeah. No one else was cooperating and there was not going to be any way to defeat, uh, uh, Kansu without cooperation of powerful capes. So, so what was the alternative to this? to this horrible deal, you know, and and again, the book is good at setting up these conundrums. Yeah, absolutely. So fault lines crew just rejects all deals that involve cauldron. So they makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, grew, grew kind of just like leaves by himself passing Taylor without making eye contact with her. Yeah. Someone's a bit pissed off at Taylor, isn't he? Mm -hmm. I wonder why this could be. Maybe it's, it's because like the one thing that grew was super self-conscious about was, uh, being vulnerable and showing mm-hmm. people his vulnerability and taylor recorded him in one of his most vulnerable moments and it got broadcasted on the internet like that could be it maybe 
maybe i don't know i don't I mean, that is exactly his character. And, and, <laughs> I mean, that his, is literally exactly it. I guarantee his, that's why he's pissed yeah, off. And his deepest vulnerability. So maybe, I guess. Yeah. So several groups leave and Taylor challenges the doctor, pointing out that Cauldron's actions in Brockton Bay only make sense if the undersiders were some kind of guinea pig. The doctor admits that this is on the right track, but says that the plan was very minor in the grand scheme of things. And she also insinuates that she would trade virtually anything to save everyone. Um, yeah, there's a lot and, of good quotes that end this one and this chapter. Yeah, like, uh, uh, do morals matter if our, our alternative is a grim and hopeless end? Um, and, then, and, and then she's talking about saving the world and she says, the doctor says, we already saved it once. There was no response. Uh, there were no responses to that. Confusion and disbelief warred with each other as I stared at her silhouette. The others seem to be in similar straits. Yeah. And I mean, like we're at this moment now and, and we don't we don't know when the other time they saved the world. But Worm is, I think, right now attacking this question. Do morals matter if our alternative is grim and hopeless end? And the the book does not give us an answer. And hopefully we'll get what the novel thinks of that by the end of it. But, but right now in this moment, we have look, we made judgments about not having morals. Like, I think, I think she says like at the end of this cauldron will be written up as the bad guys. But if we saved the world, that's worth it. And, mm -hmm. and, and by, by having an, a situation where they say we've already done this once, like we saved it once already. You guys didn't even know about it. They're almost saying that the things that we're doing are successful and they work. And we prevented the destruction of the world by abandoning our, any kind of morality and and that that's the book challenging you to say well i mean if if it works then isn't that isn't it better to be alive than without morals than dead and that's the question that the, the book's asking and i don't think it's ready to give an answer or or to at least propose what side it comes down on it yeah and, and we don't know much about the individuals within cauldron, although we have seen the doctor quite a number of times at this point. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that we could make a case that she's the kind of person who, um, will, will justify increasingly, uh, dramatic efforts, um, to, to achieve the end that she wants if she feels that it's, that it's the justified end, which is just exactly the kind of thing that Taylor, has had problems with doing where, you know, her, her behavior becomes more and more, more and more villainous and, and w willing to cross more and more lines and sacrifice more and more things in exchange for what she sees as, as the worthy goals of having, you know, saving the person who needs to be saved or, or saving her territory or her people. Um, especially when you're successful, especially. Yeah. And I think that's what the, the, the book does not directly punish when those, choices are made sometimes which mm -hmm. just reinforces that behavior and i mean that you could you could look at, at cauldron saying this is the first time they were willing to do x and it worked and they saved the world so now we're at another end of world situation again are we willing to do y and that mm -hmm. makes you start to think well if if the world has almost ended twice already what's going to stop it from happening a third time? What's going to stop mm -hmm. it from happening a fourth time? What's going to stop it from happening a fifth time? And that's when you get back to this, the end bringers arriving. And, and the whole reason for this conversation is because like we escalated to defeat 
behemoth and we did it and we won but what's around the corner it's more it's two of them if we if if we escalate to defeat those two are there gonna be four are there gonna be eight when does this stop does it ever stop yeah i mean it, it poses a lot of good questions so so i don't think it answers any in this arc but not, but not we quite can, yet we can we can move on now because i i think i think that it's good that we've made this equivalency between taylor's behavior and and possibly possibly the doctor's behavior on a much vaster scale yeah yeah um, i think that's very so, intentional yeah yeah so 25.6 opens and the vaguely aligned good-ish forces are on the field attacking Kansu. Mordnag uses her giant shadow pet to tear at the Endbringer. Tekton calls Weaver on, on her phone, panicking that she's suddenly <laughs> in South America. Poor Tekton. Yeah. It's just no idea what's going on. Yeah. Just, hey, we got a ping on, on Weaver's tracking device. She's in, what the fuck? Yeah. Kansu catches Legend in his field of accelerated time, and Legend uses his breaker power to apparently slow down his body and mind while simultaneously building up a huge amount of energy. Adolin creates another inviolable force field to channel the resulting blast out to sea. Weaver connects herself to the capes nearest to her with Silk and uses this to save Califa de Perro um, from getting time-stamped. Um, the Thanda cape... I forget his name. I don't know if we even get his name. He he strikes Kansu with a great block of stone from the sky, and which I always visualize really clearly for some reason. Um, and Mordnag's shadow nails him again. And then that same Thanda anchors all the combatants to Kansu. And when Kansu teleports, everyone comes along with him so they can continue the fight. We cut to Weaver suddenly watching all this on video. Some time later interrupted suddenly by a call from Tekton again confused and asking where she is yeah um so I I wanted to just let you read that whole battle because I have a lot to say about it generally but not a lot of the specifics of the individual fighting and I think when I was reading this my reaction was super negative to to it I think I messaged you while I was reading and I was like hey this is weird like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't have the same energy or, or gravitas of any of the other fights. And it kind of made it hard for me to follow. And your response was basically just, just hang on, just finish it. And of course, the, the reason, um, the reason why it's not told with that same energy and gravitas is because we're watching something that's already happened. And so that, so that got me thinking after, after this realization has come through, like, how how did we construct it that way how did we do this to make this feel different but not in so noticeable of a way that the time jump twist is robbed from the reader so when i when i was preparing i went back through and i read this again with that in mind and 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 you look and you see how wildbow constructed the writing and how he constructed the sentences and it's very just declarative statements it's mm-hmm. x did y Y countered with Z. I did this. I did that. What we don't see here is how Taylor feels about any of these events, her, her, her concerns, her worries. There's no anger. There's no fear. There's no sadness. All this stuff is happening. And, and the text isn't showing us any of that. It's just like 
you're reading it in a history book. Like this is a historical document. And 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 so we see in this that that Wildbow has has telegraphed for us that this is something from the past by the way he's he wrote it in a, in a very matter of factual kind of way. Um but it's it's again cleverly hidden. So we feel something's off but don't know what. And it was it was fun doing that exercise. I liked doing it. Yeah, thanks for explicating that. I think one of the clearest beats of that for me is where legend gets stuck in the field of accelerated time and and taylor like stops speaking but she doesn't think like oh no legend one of our strongest caught yeah. in the field of accelerated it's just it happens and then like and then he, then the legend deals with it and yeah. it's over and it's very it's a very much a non-event when you feel like if you really were in taylor's head um she would have been she would have been bowled over and in fact she probably was at that moment because it, oh, yeah. it, it interrupts her from what she's saying and and you know She's probably really relieved when it when it turns out to be fine. But well, you know. and and the advantage of doing this immediately after an arc where we fought another Endbringer is that we it's very fresh in our minds how she was feeling during all these moments, these moments of seemingly like hopeless defeat, and how much of that emotion was in everything she said and and did. And this is so like glaringly different from that. Yeah, that it's it's off putting, and and I chalked it up originally to. I don't think this is written well. And then it, it turns out to actually be a very clever way of, of doing things. And I liked it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I really do appreciate you drawing attention to that because I, I don't think I'd connected. I, I also noticed the writing being different. I don't think I connected it in, in that way. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she's she's scrolling through the list of Endbringer fights, which continues into the future relative to where we were before. Uh, on the phone, Tecton seems frustrated with her, borderline angry that she's disappeared again when she's supposed to be someplace. And it seems like he's been dealing with her shit for <laughs> a long time, actually. You kind of get that impression from his tone. Um, and and she starts to respond, and then he, in a kind of long-suffering way, tells her to think over her answer before she speaks. Remember all those times we joked about how annoying it would be to have Taylor on your team? Like, yep. like Tecton yep. has been living that for a long time. Yeah, he did, doesn't know what he, he didn't know what he was buying into. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So she she watches another body cam video, and this one she's in a city that uh, suddenly springs blades and thorns from all sides. In the video, she's wounded by the spikes. Bohu and Tohu appear, and they're a pair of inbringers who work in tandem. Bohu subsumes a whole area into a hellscape of traps and death. And Tohu seemingly copies aspects of the aspects and uh, appearances and powers of three powerful capes. Um, we don't really know the exact rules there, but it sounds pretty terrifying. Fuck, this is even fucking worse, Matt. How's it fucking get worse? I know. I mean, just one of these by themselves would be bad, and and apparently they always attack like as a pair together. It's so. not fair. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we get we get the description of of what exactly they do um, with the basically like several dis- distinct phases of of uh, barriers, walls, pillars, blocking paths, and and then uh, deadfalls, pitfalls, and smothering of terrain features. Following that, we get uh, mechanical traps. Um, <laughs> what? And, and then it all <laughs> and, and then it all starts and, o- and then it all starts over um, um, with spikes shooting out of everything at the beginning of each new phase um and then in some cases 
she's fainting and in other cases she's fainting and inability to do so. So it's like you're trapped in a death maze that is malevolently out to get you. Awesome. Yeah. This is so much better than Behemoth. Yeah. He was just a big guy who, you know, shot lightning. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, Annex dies during this flashback. That's the thing yeah. that happens off screen. Was... And I really liked Annex. And that's that's sad. Yeah, that was that was super gut wrenching how she's just it, it's the effect that it has on her clearly is is what's is what's so sad about it, where she's just like so worn out by all this. And yeah. I think that's kind of the biggest change with her character is, is she's just like silently closes her eyes and just kind of gets through it. You know, yeah, she, she she's she's clearly someone who has had to deal with so much of this stuff now because now she looks at the clock and it's June 19th, 2013. All right, Matt. So let's talk about it. We've been we've been foreshadowing this this time jump conversation the entire podcast. Let's talk yeah. about time jumps as a narrative device and how they work and how they don't and how worm uses it and where i think worm does very well with it um i I do i do genuinely like i know i was critical earlier but i i think the mechanism of how it is executed and the aftermath of the jump is done very well um i i think it, it works very well and it and it highlights the advantages of doing things these way. It's it's funny. Last week, I think we talked about the idea of kind of a, a time jump, but not really when Taylor and company goes down into the cavern and then comes back up and everything's changed. And we get to see immediately how much things have changed because it's the, the contrast is so stark and glaring. And that really... I didn't know we were going to be talking about this this week, but that really is one of the the perfect examples of how this literary device can achieve something that you draw immediate contrast between how things were and how things are now by by jumping forward in time and 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 instead of seeing the slow incremental turn to this change in a character or change in a place or or change in in a, a opinion or feeling, it's it's right in your face and it's immediate. Yeah, I think this is a, an excellent application of, of a time jump. If you have to have a time jump, then this is how to do it. And I would like I think my opinion on time jumps is is really they should probably be avoided if you can avoid them, because you do kind of bleed off some sense of connection to your characters when you're with them, you're right with them, you're right in their head. And then suddenly it's two years later and you get the sense that they're a little bit different than they were before. You get the sense you don't really know them as well as you knew them before. And it, it there's suddenly this distance, this disconnect from your character. I think that's almost inevitable unless you go out of your way to specify that the character didn't develop at all, which then you have to almost ask, why did you need to do a time jump if the character didn't <laughs> develop? Um, but I think that all that aside, um, those things are almost unavoidable. I think what what this does do correctly is is all the things you said it and and in particular it sets up um it sets up all of the things that you need to know about in advance so that you 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 basically you see the you see the start of the trajectory you see the 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 hand throwing the stone and then and then we cut and then we cut to the stone landing 
and you don't need to see the arc of the stone in the, in, in the sky because you saw the beginning and you saw the ending and, and what we understood the trajectories that all these characters were on, you know, however long ago it was. Um, and, and now we see where they, where they've ended up and it's, it's essentially just what it, what it should be. And it's what we expect in most cases and yeah. in the cases where it's not what we expect. That's, that's interesting to learn about, but it's, it's never just like, well, that's confusing. It doesn't make sense because, yeah, that that would be misusing the technique, I think. And, and there's one way very specifically that I think this story utilizes the jump in, a, in, in an advantageous way because we see in this moment that uh, Tekton is trying to convince Taylor to go to something. Like, you need to go there. You need to be on time. This is important. And he tells her, is like, look, you've been with us longer than you were ever with the Undersiders. Mm-hmm. Like, and... To Taylor, the Undersiders, regardless of this time that's going by, the Undersiders are always going to be this important, powerful force in her life. And because we, the observers, skipped this interaction with the the Chicago wards, we're that way too. We mm-hmm. still see, we've spent way more time with Taylor and the Undersiders than we have spent with Taylor and the wards. So this this feeling that Taylor gets where, yeah, I know I've spent more time with you, but these these are really, these are really my important people. These are my people. Yeah. And we feel that because we've jumped over all that. We skipped it. So we care so much about the undersiders. And I like the wards. I like the wards chapters a lot. They're some of my favorite chapters in the book, but this jump achieves us the goal of getting us into Taylor's head. And if we had taken time and, and gone through one or two arcs of time with these wards, we wouldn't, I don't think that would have worked as well. Yeah. Yeah. We don't even need her to think like, I, I don't feel particularly close with the wards. We just see the absence of any, of any feelings of, yeah. of closeness with the wards. And they, and they marry our, our absence because we have not been there. Yeah. 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 Right. So, so ultimately she tells Tecton that she will be there and she'll be there on time. And he's actually kind of surprised to hear this. Um, and when we learn what they're talking about, that seems a little bit grim. Um, she thinks about how the deadline is here. Uh, it's actually 16 days overdue. In fact, uh, Jack's return is also overdue. Dinah still insists that the end of the world is right on top of them any day now, but the PRT employees are starting to lose confidence. And it's Taylor's birthday. Have, yeah. Happy birthday. The world's <laughs> going to end. Happy birthday. Um, I, I do, I do like that beat that, that the end of the world is late. And, and whenever something like that happens, people are like, ah, eh. I knew it was fake and yeah. and people are very willing and ready to write something off like that especially when it means that they might not die horribly um and so it seems like the perfect if 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 you were going to want to end the world it would be great to let things go by and then gut punch them with the surprise ah, just when you thought it wasn't happening just kidding yeah so taylor disembarks from a dragon ship onto uh, a city's beach we don't know what city it's not explicit explicitly told to us at first uh, and then she rises up to the city to brockton bay and we we recognize all the the sights and sounds obviously i, I like how that's done where where we we're 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 reminded of it because we see all the trappings that we're familiar with all the names of things that we're familiar with um she also thinks about the new things that she doesn't recognize the new gang tags the new buildings yeah it's it's familiar but not too familiar but not too not familiar <laughs> 
it's a good reference. I don't know nice. what you're talking about. I was just okay. talking normally. All right. All right. Fine, Scott. Um, she finds a memorial uh, of two masks, one laughing over a somber one. Taylor talks to the spirit of Regent now, and uh, she talks for quite a while um, about how she can't write off all the bad things he did because he sacrificed himself in the end. And it, it's actually quite a quite a long speech, but it, it ends with, you lived the life you lived with a lot of bad, a little bit of a horrific and some good. And now you're gone and people will remember different parts of that. And I think that would sound arrogant, except, well, we're pretty similar on that score, aren't we? It's where we sort of had common ground that I didn't have with any of the others. We've been monstrous. Matt, <laughs> first of all, the memorial is perfect. I love it. I love yeah. the two masks. I love the rings around it that we learn what those are later. It's perfect. But like, I, I am so happy you brought up the fact that, and maybe you brought this up knowing it was going to come up this week, but the fact that, that Taylor pushes away comparing herself to Regent so much because we see in this moment that she's honest with herself and she realizes that, Hey, you and I were way more similar than I was ever willing to let on. And again, advantage of time jump. We see this is a different Taylor. Now she has grown. She has, she's not compartmentalizing as much anymore. She is willing to accept that yes i was like this person i have been monstrous before and it's huge and that you're so happy for her. i'm really happy for her. i i love the moment i love that we honor regent it's great yeah yeah that's that's definitely why i pulled this out because last week we had talked about how she goes out of her way to avoid thinking about regent she goes out of her way to avoid being sad about him being dead and and really almost bends over backwards sometimes and and it's interesting. The first, the, you know, the the first undersider she goes to visit, as it were, is is Alec, um, before before Rachel, before uh, before Lisa, before Gru. Yep. She she goes to see because she has to get this off her chest. Yeah, because we never we, she never let herself actually grieve or mourn for him. Yeah, um, because she couldn't because that would be admitting that she cared for him, which would be admitting that she was like him, which would take her down a path that she didn't want to go. And so, yeah, yeah. we get to see that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really important. And then uh, she she touches the uh, the wedding bands that are fused to the statue and slightly more grown up imp sneaks up on her and startles her uh, and then starts verbally poking at her Uh with with her bugs, she notices that she's basically surrounded by heartbreaker, Heartbreaker's kids, who Imp now seemingly takes care of. Yeah, so Imp kept her promise from last week and, and killed Heartbreaker. Um, and then, of course, goes one step further and basically becomes a mother to the children and takes them in. And it's really great. Yeah. I like so, that Taylor's like simultaneously like happy about this and also terrified at the same time. Yeah. And then realizes that they might have Heartbreaker's power and then gets even more terrified because they could tell that she's terrified. Yeah, there's, there's, it's interesting how kind of paranoid she is and and, and wrong footed um, because she I mean, this is another chapter, actually, where there's some there's some man. I don't know if I want to call it comedy or not, because I don't think I felt it was comedic the first time I read it. But it's definitely comedic now. These parts where where Imp is just torturing her. Um, it's hilarious to me now, but it's been literally years since I first read this book. Yeah, so it did not. Had time. It did not come off as particularly comedic to me. I was, I was 
you know, you kind of forget that this is Imp we're talking about. <laughs> and so, like, yeah. I was reading all these statements that she's making as very straight. And, and of course, we get subverted on that. But, yeah, yeah I was, I was like, like, when she says, um, I like you better than her, like, my brain was like, what does she mean? And, like, Taylor thinks about who she's talking about. And then I'm, I'm in my mind thinking, like, is she saying, like, as Weaver, she's different than Skitter and she likes the new Taylor better than the old Taylor? And I, like, my mind went, like, crazy places with it. Um, yeah. I wonder if you remember what your interpretation of that when you first read it was. You know, I think I, I think I interpreted Imp's behavior as being a lot more, like, angry and malevolent and, and distrustful of Taylor and, and, like, like, genuinely angry to see her back. Um, and almost like the reading of, of her being literally surrounded by, the the heartbreaker children was very threatening so it all it all kind of reads as being threatening so so stuff like that i stuff like i like you better than her i i almost just thought it was completely cryptic and and just was more paying attention to, to the level on which it's a threatening situation and that's kind of where the comedy comes from on 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 the rereads is you realize that it's not a threatening situation you realize that imp is just screwing with her um hmm. and yeah. that she kind of sort of deserves it um yeah i wonder yeah like i've never for some reason i've never seen imp as that threatening which doesn't make a lot of sense because she's extremely powerful and very kind of a a scary individual but i don't know i guess for some reason i never read any of this as as threatening um yeah but i probably should have i mean you're probably i think the text is kind of supposed to make you be on your toes a little bit here and and a little untrustworthy of of what's going on, but because the first thing she says to her is I've, I've heard people for touching those. Yeah. Which is not a welcoming thing to say to some <laughs> friend you haven't seen in a long time. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm probably infantilizing her a little bit and still treating her as if she's a little girl, which I shouldn't, but that's probably what's <laughs> happening. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting, it, it's, it is hard. It is hard to remember exactly what it was like because it's the kind of thing where once you realize what's going on, your impression of the whole scene changes. So yeah. 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 So next, uh, Rachel approaches writing Angelica and when she reaches Taylor, she hops off and she hugs her. Um, and then says, uh, I didn't know what to say. So they told me to just do, I wasn't sure what to do. So I asked and they told me to hug you if I wanted to hug you and hit you if I wanted to hit you. Yeah. Oh my God, Matt. I don't, I don't have anything insightful to say or anything here. I just, I loved it. I loved yeah. it. I loved I love, it. I love everything. I loved their conversation about the value of bathrooms <laughs> and, and how that, and how this would be an awkward conversation between any other two characters. But with them, you're just like, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The bathroom is yeah, really good. Bathrooms. Yeah. God, you guys, you didn't yeah. miss a beat. It's like you haven't yeah. been apart at all. Yeah. I'd love it. Yeah. Um, and then Imp interjects, uh, you should know in advance that they're married. And Taylor, of course, assumes that she's talking about Foyle and Perrion, who also show up promptly. Yeah, and they're holding hands and everyone seems so happy. Yeah. It's like, oh, look, life in Brockton Bay moved on. Yeah, it's a happy reunion. And, and Tattletail shows up and, and gives her kisses on the cheeks, I believe, on the mandibles. And, um, <laughs> oh, and yeah. The, 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 their meeting to me is probably the most like normal and genuine yeah. of, of just like two friends who haven't seen each other in, in a while. Yeah. It's, and then, uh, Gru approaches with a retinue of red hands and with Cozen. 
Uh, and we see that that Taylor handles this just like a champ. Um, I, <laughs> um, and and like I love that it's really at this moment that and, and I the I like her better than you. And just so you know, they're married like those comments triggered in my head almost simultaneously with Taylor. So I think that that the, the rhythm of that matched up perfectly where I'm like, oh, shit, he got married. Yeah. And then um, Taylor's Taylor's doing well with it. The the yeah. most awkward handshake hug thing in the world. Yeah. So this reminds me how not comedic I found this the first time because <laughs> because all of this I found very very sad actually because it shows you that the fact that Taylor is so crushed by seeing that Gru has moved on and and is I don't know supposedly happy with someone else. Um, shows you that she hasn't moved on at all um in her personal life like for yeah. for for whatever she's managed to accomplish and forever however she's managed to develop and and get better at dealing with you know all, all of the all of the horrible things she's had to deal with and fighting in bringers all the time she has not moved on like a week beyond when we last saw her essentially she's she's not only has she not found a new boyfriend she hasn't even like her, her her feelings about Gru haven't even budged. Yeah, and I think tell. I think that goes back to why the time jump works so well, though. Because like, like imagine if you're friends with someone for three months and then you move away, and you're somewhere else for a year and a half, and then you come back and you still think they're all your best friends, and they've been it's a year it's been a year and a half, and they've they've had relationships with people like four times the length of of what your relationship was was with them and it shows that like because we're still in taylor's head because we didn't witness the time passing we both feel like oh they're still friends like they're and and i think that that, again that puts us in her point of view so well and it does this because we skipped the time yeah right and and it it seems like her her social life has been so impoverished that um, from her point of view, they still are her best friends and, and all of yeah. them have probably been having their own lives doing their own things. Yeah. And they still all, I think they like, like it's very clear that Rachel still really likes her. It's very clear that Lisa still considers her a friend, but yeah, um, it, I, I don't think it's quite the same as she yeah. sees it. Yeah. Right. I mean, grew definitely seems to have, shifted in his yeah. in his attitude toward oh, yeah. her in a significant way um imp imp just seems to have grown up a lot like yeah. f- from the small amount that we see of her um it's almost like taylor's trying to, to the, the reason taylor's so caught off guard is she's modeling her as like i don't know being 14 now she's now she's 16 i mean yeah. that's a that's a pretty big jump actually um yeah so uh they they do their awkward uh, handshake hug, like you mentioned, um, and and then uh, Tattletale segues the conversation into important topics like like uh, the end of the world and Inbringers and finding Jack or the designer of the Inbringers, and uh, Taylor thinks safe topics somehow more reassuring than this. <laughs> uh, and as usual, Taylor is better at being a cape than a person. Literally the only person in the world that would find the world ending more reassuring than dealing with your ex. Yeah, right. Oh, man. 
we finally learn that Taylor is going to be sworn in to the protectorate as an adult member. That's the thing that she's late for. Yeah, and and we, which kind of retroactively makes us realize that she was, even at the last minute, contemplating not doing it, um, contemplating not going through with it. And and Tecton was surprised when she said, yeah, no, I'm going to be there. Um, yeah, it's another one of those things that's is disappointing um, where you're like, wow, I... I, I would have hoped that if we had a time skip, we would come back to like fully heroic, you know, very sure and 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 confident grown up Weaver. And it's like, no, no, because actually you don't want that because that would be unrealistic for one yeah. thing. And also that would mean that you missed a lot of stuff that you really should have seen to understand this character. Yep. Um, so this makes way more sense than any of that. Um, and then finally, Imp uh, admits that she was messing with Taylor with all the things that she said and then but then continues to do so um and uh yeah it was telling her that Cozen is pregnant yeah like okay I got completely fooled here as well and I'm willing to admit (laughs) that but after I realized it it made me think about there's this whole conversation where Gru says congratulations for getting into the protectorate and she says back I should be saying that to you because she thinks that they're married Uh and Gru's like oh Thank you. <laughs> and like, I'm wondering what's going through his head at this point. <laughs> I I think he's just confused. I think <laughs> it probably, probably was exactly the way you just said it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, for, for having a girlfriend, I guess. Yeah. That's really funny. It's so awkward. Oh, and, it's, and it's all Imster's fault. <laughs> yeah. She totally did it on purpose. Yep. And the best thing is that if, if it t- turned out badly, she could have just disappeared from everyone's attention. Yep, yeah, I would have forgotten. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so Imp then points out that she can pretty well read Taylor's emotions by watching how her bugs react, while Taylor herself always seems stoic, as we know. And this is one of many beats in the story that indicates that Imp is a ver- very, very observant person. Um, arms masters lie detector got a bad read on Taylor. Alexandria's cold reading failed completely, but imp is the one person who figures out that if you want to understand what Taylor's feeling, don't look at Taylor, look at her bugs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you pulled that out because like, I think we, the readers have known about this for a while, how easily her bugs betray her emotions. But yeah, no one, no one in this book up until this point has, has really noticed this and imp imp calls it out and she's very observant and pretty capable villain there hasn't she turned into yeah yeah there's a there's a list of of imps observational skills that i've that i've set aside to be introduced at a later time when when the when the list is more complete but uh yeah so sneaky matt yeah i know uh so then suddenly taylor's phone rings jack's back and that's that's how we leave the the chapter and the non-interlude part of the arc. Yeah, pretty pretty foreboding. Very yep. interesting, uh, interesting stuff. Um, yeah, I think I think we discussed everything well enough as we were kind of going along, so we can just move on to this interlude, which is which is uh, pretty great, Scott. It's really great, and I'm really mad that we are running so late because yep. we're, we're just gonna do it. We're just I'm not I'm not gonna try to speed through this. No, it's um, worth it. Let's just do it. So 25.x, we've got Bonesaw. Bonesaw and Jack watch the broadcast from the end of the arc where Taylor 
decided to be a good guy. Yeah, and then thus starts, in my opinion, uh, the best written chapter that I've seen of this book so far. Um, I think there there are still moments I think I liked better in other arcs, but just from a, a writing perspective, there is so much going on here, so much that's textual, so much that's subtextual, so many things we're, we're doing and comparing to other parts of the arc, other parts of the book, we're, we're recon- like completely recontextualizing this character, and so much goes on. It's not a particularly long chapter either, it's just very dense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree that there's there's even more going on, I think, than I realized back before I, I read it a bunch of times in a row in preparation for this and, and realized there's there's some really subtle beats that I want to try to to pick out. And, and I think we will. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to finish this and, and people in the comments will clue us into a bunch of stuff that we didn't even see. I mean, there's there's so much here that I, uh, you could you could spend an entire episode on this one chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, basically right off the bat, Bonesaw puts Jack in stasis and then she starts to consider what she'll do. And she's all alone now and she finds herself reluctant to put herself in stasis. She decides that she'll need to do a lot of work to make the clones work properly, to be really like the originals, to have their powers and their personalities. Yeah, and, and one of the things I want to point out here, um, the the continuous beat around art in this story and how what Bonesaw is doing is a work of art and this idea that art is an art without an audience. And I think mm-hmm. that that goes into, you know, her primary motivation for everything is not doing the thing for the sake of the thing, but it's doing this thing for other people. And, and of course at first it's her mother who tells her to be a good girl. Then she, we find all this stuff about, about Jack and that she's primarily motivated, not by like, we, we realize that it's not like, Bonesaw is not like super curious and like interested in all this stuff. She's doing it. She's performing. She's constantly performing for someone. And that person is Jack. So this idea of being separated from that and being alone is, is really profound for this little girl who has never been alone. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think actually a a lot of her motivation is fear on some level. I mean, she's, she's traumatized and terrorized by Jack and that's, that's why she's with him and we'll get into that. But but that's one thing that that is not at all obvious from the outside of this character. Yeah. So she decides that she'll use the archive of memories that she has access to in order to build the personalities for the clones. Just like art. Yep. So uh, she rewires Blasto, who she has captured still, into a boombox to make him sing an annoying song on repeat and to dance along with it. I don't. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> this is sad. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's but I, OK, I know you don't want to talk about this, but like it's 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 an element of of saying like, yep, this is still Bonesaw. She's still a, a horrifying nightmare person. Right. And and we continue that throughout the arc. I mean, they're yeah. like even even as she's transitioning away from being this person into hopefully being a a better person, she continues to do awful things. Yeah. Um, and I think that's very important. Yeah. And it's it's much more realistic than. You know, just a, a quick snap and then, she, oh, I realize the error of my ways. I'm I'm good, you know. Yep. Yeah. So later on, Bonesaw has been working with the clones um, and and she has tea with Damsel of Distress, a, a megalomaniacal small child. Bonesaw is basically ass- assessing her progress and then she puts her back to sleep. And I like this. Uh, yes, 
I thought you could didn't trust anyone. What a shame you couldn't be more constructive in that distrust, Monsaw said. <laughs> I really like this moment. There's a lot of interesting beats within this art, uh, chapter about family and relationships and you know motherhood and we see later that that bonesaw literally prevents herself from becoming a woman um and to stay a little girl um and this is the moment where she kind of is is like assuming the mantle of mother for these clones in these early stages of this and and i think that's a beat that we carry through the interactions in the rest of the arc yeah yeah i agree so next she goes over to visit baby Alan Graham and he's also <laughs> unstable and, and too erratic and she realizes that she's not hitting the right notes in the right order in terms of develop, developing the personalities and furthermore the passengers are having too much influence over the clones um, so she boils all the clones uh, to death and starts over. Um, so this is by itself horrifying that she's doing this elaborate like mind torture on these clones and then killing them over yeah. and over to try to get what she wants. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and you also have this, like she's realizing that, um, if you let the, the passenger develop at the same rate as a human, that, that it starts to exert too much control over the, the person and and then too much influence. And you realize that Bonesaw is a, is a young child herself who triggered very young, and then you're starting to go down this line of how much of bone saw is the passenger and how much of it is is her and who she is. And this idea of uh, identity is something that that's carried through the, the rest of the chapter that, that she's trying to to find her identity and find who she is. And and of course, we deal with it, the metaphor so much where she's trying to create personalities of other people while finding who she is at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, we get these continual beats in the background of Blasto like spasming on the ground, nope. singing. Nope. 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 And just, nope. just going to mention that nope. that's constantly. Nope. You know. Nope. There. Um, Bonesaw steps outside of the pocket dimension to pick up some supplies from a corner store. Uh, she notices that the cashier is watching her. Yeah, it's just a nice man that stares at her in a mirror when she's not looking. It's not because he recognizes her. It's not because he knows she's Bonesaw. It's just something else, something that that settles her down when when she realizes what it is. I wonder, wonder what that can be. Yeah, probably not something really creepy and disturbing. No, not at all. No. Contessa uh, corners her when she heads outside and puts a mind whammy on her. She tells <laughs> Bonesaw to make a control switch for the clones, or rather she tells her that she will do that. <laughs> um and then she communicates two ideas. One of the ideas is breadth and depth, and the other is say goodbye. Stand past to victory. They're just they're just not fair. Yep. And then the next thing we know at Bonesaw is dreaming. Riley is trying to save her mommy and daddy and other family members who are bleeding out, mutilated by the nine. The, the little girl is exhausted. She's been trying to put them back together for hours. Her mind breaks, and she sees her dead mother as a thing rather than a person. She chooses to fit into a mold she thinks Jack will accept. Like her mother said, she'll be a good girl and go with Jack. Yeah, this is a... Ouch. This is really tough. Yeah, um, I mean, I I think I, like, tear up on some level every time I read this part because it's it's so horrible. Um, and, 
makes you understand and empathize with this horrible character and, and get how it's perfectly reasonable that she would have, have broken to the extent that she did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, she literally assumes a new identity out of fear, um, yeah. an identity that she thinks will appeal to this guy. And so, so ha- her attachment to Jack now suddenly makes sense because it's everything. It's the only thing she has. She assumes this identity because she's terrified of him and she has to be that constantly so much so that along the way she kind of just becomes that identity. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because whenever we saw Bonesaw and Jack interacting in the past, you had this sense that there was something genuine, uh, you know, between them of, Jack sort of saw her as a daughter and, and she sort of saw him as a daddy. Yeah. And you'd see, you'd see cracks in that sometimes when, when Jack would talk about her, like she wasn't there. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, I distinctly remember Taylor kind of thinking about that. Like she doesn't mind that you're kind of talking about her like that. And she's standing right there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and now we realize, especially at the, at the end of this chapter that it's actually been this, almost like this game of cat and mouse between them this whole time where she's constantly having to keep up her facade of being the perfect little girl. And he's constantly trying to sniff out any sign of weakness or failure on that, on that image. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she, uh, she has this horrible nightmare, which is obviously a a true flashback of, of what happened to her. Um, and, and then she wakes up and she can't cuddle with brain dead Blasto. So she gets to work uh, on the clones. Yeah, and, and it's obvious, like, obviously the, the, everything that's happening now was triggered by Contessa's mind whammy. But it, it's not hard to see that because Riley is alone and away from this constant terrifying presence in Jack that she's, like, consistently afraid of, that she's allowed to maybe relax this persona a bit even subconsciously and tap into things that she hasn't allowed herself to tap into for for years because she needed to survive um yeah and and i i think i think it's it's very fitting that in this in this beat where where, where she's realizing how alone she is and these feelings are starting to come up you get that that second instance in this chapter of where she repeats the phrase that um art needed an audience to be art and that's mm-hmm. once again a reflection of that she is she is alone here and it's it's in that loneliness that she's finding herself yeah definitely so back in the town she chats with her friend Eli the pedophile again oops sorry oh yeah um, this guy's totally a pedophile guys slipped out it's very, um, very much a pedophile yes yes by the way scott people are impressed that you caught that really yeah i thought i mean i thought I, it was I, I don't I don't actually remember if I caught it or not, frankly, but a lot of people don't. Huh. Um, yeah. But yeah, I you're think right. it's really important to everything that happens. The fact that he is horrible. Yeah, he's he's a, a monster in his own way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a girl has disappeared from the town. Um, and when we get back to the pocket dimension, we see that Bonesaw has kidnapped this girl and is using her to bake memories. Yeah. So she's and, she's awakening, Matt, but still. Still terrible things. Yep. Still doing terrible things. She's just a little bit more self-aware about them, I guess. Um, And she's thinking about breadth and depth. That message Contessa gave her. The problem with the clones was that there's too much breadth. 
the passengers have too much influence uh, because they get their hooks in, as it were, too young. Um, Jack has depth, a special alignment with his passenger. And all of this causes Bonesaw to ask herself, how much of me is me? And Darn then, mind whammies. Yeah. Darn it, drat, gosh, golly, fuck. And again, that's one of those moments that is so well established throughout the book that her cussing like lands. It's because mm-hmm. it's so different. And mm-hmm. and you almost see it like darn it, drat, gosh, golly, fuck. Like the transition from like we we move through insults until she just runs out of things to say that aren't cussing. And there's just so much going on here. Like it's almost like daunting to talk about it because you have you have the pedophile, you have a monster in Eli who is like Bonesaw, but d- different. Um, and, and in him, she feels a connection that she's never felt before, not a familial connection, but friendship. And, and she, she thinks of that friendship as, as distinctly different from family because it's nothing related to her power. It's nothing related to the passenger. It's nothing related to this lifestyle she's had to put up. But Matt, he's a pedophile. (laughs) And it's like, it's like we're having this awakening and we're doing it with monstrous characters but you, you sympathize with her and you sympathize with this friendship that she's made with this person who maybe on some level she relates to because he too is a monster. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think she probably does relate to him because it's, he probably, you know, she can really relate to having, to having urges that are unacceptable. You know, that's kind of how she, it's kind of what she is. Yeah. yeah. Um, she, she's, she's, when she sees people, she sees a, a meat machine, you know, and, and that's, that makes her, that, that's what makes her a monster. And when, when he sees, you know, a prepubescent girl, which is what she looks like, uh, he sees something that most people don't see. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so Riley eventually chooses to reverse her apparent aging. She doesn't feel bad about what she's done really. Um, but she now recognizes that she's broken. She recognizes that she should feel bad. She decides she'll undergo the procedure without numbing the pain as a form of penance. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so we have this moment. She, she basically decides I'm going to be perpetually young now. Um, I'm going to issue adulthood, motherhood. I'm going to remove my sex organs. I think she, 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 like everything, right? Like, yeah, a hysterectomy. Takes, yeah. Um, yeah. and, and it's, you know, Jack liked controlling bone saw through this method of father son thing her only friend is a pedophile that likes her because she's a little girl and in this moment like she takes a bone saw a literal bone saw to her body to transform herself into bone saw yeah so she can hide away the awakened riley side of her and the the imagery of that is just so incredible and mind-boggling and to think of of how much is going on here. Like I, some of it, I, I haven't even fully processed yet. And I've read this chapter like four times. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I've fully processed it. <laughs> I've been, I've been sitting with it for a while and it, and it still affects me emotionally too. In yeah. addition to being, you know, in addition to being good to think about on a cognitive yeah. level. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she goes back to Eli's shop to say goodbye to him. Not, not the, not the first goodbye, but, another goodbye and she gives him a letter telling him to open it at a particular date and he gives her a gift a horror movie about a child monster 
and uh, she she wonders if this is a, a kind of clue, but real, but decides that it it probably isn't. It's just yeah. the kind of thing that she would like. Yeah. And uh, and as she leaves, she says, "Be fucking good, Eli." She retorted, staring at him. Before he might have protested, feigned confusion. He'd changed much as she had. Now he only nodded a little. I will. Matt did Bonesaw just like cure a pedophile? <laughs> I, I, I doubt she cured him. I think. No. I, I mean, we we didn't see we didn't see what really passed between them in in, in the time that they knew each other. Um, we didn't really see what they talked about. But but I bet they I bet they came to see each other as kindred spirits. And yeah, I mean, I think I think the idea that he saw her, or she's very very much at least she saw him for what he was, and mm-hmm. and she never stated it, but it was very transparent that she knew exactly what he was and what he wanted. And, and, and for a guy like that is not something they have to confront very often. The, the true nature of, of who they are when someone actually sees them for that, recognizes them for the monster that they are and, and calls them out on it. And I think, yeah, I mean, he's not cured. I was joking, but um, she has had an effect on him. Right. And and as as the monsters that she's had to, had to deal with go, he's he's a lightweight. So yeah, yeah. So Riley wires up her body to respond automatically, the way Bonesaw would, and wakes up Jack and then the rest of them. Jack immediately seems threatening and suspicious, and and I want to emphasize this because there's one reading where Jack seems threatening and suspicious because he suddenly is suspicious of her. But there's another where Jack always seems threatening and suspicious to to Riley because that's actually the nature of the relationship from the inside is he he's always probing her, he's always questioning yeah her her choices and um, maybe and maybe Bonesaw previously like was either blissfully unaware of that or didn't know, mm-hmm. um, but now Riley has woken up and she is very much aware of that this dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I love this because we, we've now kind of come full circle because like we saw at, in, in the flashback that Riley became Bonesaw as a survival mechanism back when she was a kid. She went through this horrible trauma and she had this guy that she was terrified of. And the only way she thought she could survive is to become what this guy wanted her to be. And then again, at the end of this chapter, she does she does much the same thing here, only a lot more literal. She physically transforms herself to physically become that person but but things are are different now the smile that she could fake when she was that little girl she needs like a machine to do it for her now she can't fake those things anymore she needs that stuff um something within her has woken up and and regardless of this exterior that she has painted on herself she's not going to be the same and you get the feeling that in this moment jack kind of knows it Mm mm-hmm yeah, yeah, I, th- I think he does. And then the various other clones emerge, and we see their new powers, their new shapes in some cases. Kings, crawlers, mantons with Siberians. And then the single gray boy emerges. Suddenly, fully clothed, emerging from his tank, monochrome. He scares even Jack. He approaches her and greets her as a sister. I think we'll be inseparable. Oh, boy. <laughs> Poor Riley. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I've given you everything you want, she thought. Now we see who comes out ahead. Succeed and Bonesaw comes to the fore. Fail and Riley wins. She wanted Riley to win, but that wasn't as simple as making a decision. 
she had to bury her life with the nine, bury Jack, and see him defeated. What a great way to end shit. Yeah. Wild Boat made me like Bonesaw, Matt. Yeah. What do I, I do? What do I, I do? I, mean, I believe I believe you actually joked about this. Did I? I, I think you did because I, I I don't know you I may be wrong I bet I bet I bet we can find it though because it's like yeah I bet he's gonna you know do a redemption arc for Bonesaw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean that's not surprising, but yeah, I, yeah I I don't know, man. I I feel like we've barely scratched the surface on this thing. There's just yeah. there's so much powerful imagery in here, um, and it's it's so fantastically well written and and the mixed feelings I have about the rest of the arc, um, like go away when I read this chapter. Yeah. I mean, just for the record, uh, Wildo said that he was, he was substantially distracted. Um, was not in an ideal writing, um, setting for, for, for this entire arc. And then when he got back to his normal, uh, you know, his home essentially was when he was able to start writing this interlude. So, that that is the straightforward explanation for any any gap hmm. in, in yeah. quality, but, but I think but I, I think that I, shows. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, like it, it's I, I'm, and I'm not denigrating the quality of the other stuff. I think there are parts of it that feel a little rushed, and like we talked about, like I think some we we leave some dangling stories when we make the time jump. The time jump just kind of happens and there are stuff that's that I, I feel is left over. But yeah, I mean, this is this is fantastic. Yeah, right. It's not like this is just like, oh, a return to form. It's like, no, this is maybe the best stuff in, in the story. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I hesitate to say it's my favorite interlude, and and uh, that's just because it's hard to pick, frankly. But but yeah. It's, it's I don't really, hesitate. It's my favorite interlude. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, that's... I, I agree that we could probably continue to talk about this, but we're... Uh, we're late. We're late, so... And, and we did talk about it quite a bit. We so. did. Uh, let's play a quick name game. Um, I've got got a couple of easy ones. Um, Mordnag uh, apparently is named after a corpse eater made of shadows. Well, that's pretty pretty literal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Look. Um, and and uh, you know we don't we haven't we don't usually do this actually, but the 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 people's given names are very often meaningful actually, and Riley kind of means like a, a carefree person huh. which is which is i guess ironic it's because very that's ironic yeah kind of what bonesaw is but not so much what riley is actually yeah yeah um, yeah uh yeah all right so that's that's it for name game um scott let's hear those juicy speculations all right well matt i forgot to do a new one <laughs> i'm looking at the sheet and it says new number one and there's blank. a blank next to it yeah um, i see that I see that there <laughs> Um, we will go over the old ones. Uh, I, I said that Taylor was going to join the Chicago wards and move to Chicago and, and Danny would go too. Uh, no, Danny does not go. I really thought, Oh, first of all, I thought this whole Taylor on the wards thing was going to be a much longer part of the story than it ended up being. Cause I did not predict that, that we would be jumping through time, but, um, but I got that one wrong. So, um, the other one was I said the next conflict that's going to happen is going to be dragon and defiant versus saint. And that was really wrong. Um, I still think that's coming in some form or fashion, but no, we did not go to that next. So that was wrong. Um, yeah. yeah. Can't win them all. No, I could try to do an off the cuff one here. I, it's not going to be good. 
Yeah, just go for it. Um, I did, I don't. I'd have to like go back and remember everything that happened in the arc we just talked about for two and a half hours. I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know. I I feel bad. I've let everyone down here. That's okay. But like I said, like as we get as the closer and closer we get to the end of this thing, the harder it is for me to come up with these things because like I just feel like the 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 reveals that are left are are the big big story wide reveals and i i just i think they're intentionally kind of obscured yeah yeah i mean i i think you know if you come up with something as we're doing the the outro here then uh let me know but i might just secretly like edit something in tomorrow and you'll never know you people will never hear this except for the people that are watching us live right now (laughs) hi yeah all right. Well, uh, that will wrap up our coverage of Arc 25 Scarab. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at morefloppative. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and pretty much anywhere else on the website world that you can listen to podcasts. Wow, that was that was beautiful. The website world. Um, as, always, you, as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, criticism. Wow, I lost my... I made fun of you, and then I lost my place in the thing. This is going it's real well. late, Scott. All of our writing late. essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, the council convenes once again for a new episode of the Kryptonian Collection, where we determine if Matt's pick in Bruges is good enough to make it into the collection of the best films in the world. Also, we have a new episode of both So-Called Writers and Phantom Zoned that will come out in the next couple of days. That's right, Scott. And if you like any of these shows and want to support them, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new planeteers, Brandon, uh, Seshi, Fancy Hat, and Coder Guy, all at the $1 level, and Vale at the $5 level. <laughs> I'm so glad I don't have to pronounce some of these names sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. Everyone gets entertainment from my butchering. <laughs> Also, speaking of Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildbo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing and Worm 2 possible. Worm 2. I'm not reading it. (laughs) Um, As always, if you can't spare any extra cash at the moment, totally fine. We completely understand. Uh, But consider going like straight to the mayor. Go around the authority figures and straight to the mayor, um, even when your director tells you not to, and share the podcast with him. Or... You can just go over to iTunes and leave us a review and a rating. This week's review comes from, oh no, Matt, here's a, here's a name. (laughs) Ancho? Ancho? How would you pronounce that? Aniko? Aniko. That's better. That's better. Aniko, who gives us five stars and says, as someone who's read Worm twice, but has read various parts of it a bunch of extra times, it's an exceptionally lengthy read, if you don't know. I've been having a great time listening to Matt and Scott make their way through the complicated morass of people trying to do the right thing and both failing and succeeding that Worm is. Elevated pop fiction with its own elevated pop podcast. Highly recommend. Smiley face. You hear that, Matt? We're a pop podcast. We're a pop yeah. podcast. We my made mom, it. I told my mom I was going to be a pop star. 
and she didn't believe me. And now we're pop podcast. Yeah. In a technical definition, we are that. <laughs> All right. That's it for us this week. Next week, we are covering the first half of Arc 26 Sting. That will be actually uh, 26.1 through 26.5, which is more than half of the arc, but it's a better break in terms of the story. Uh, Scott, what is Sting going to be about? It's going to be about flying like a butterfly, but stinging like a bee. Um, I, 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 this is one of like Scarab was tough for me. Sting is tough for me because it's such a like we could start to talk about the definition of Sting as like um, a, 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 like when cops set up a, an illegal exchange and then jump in on it. I, I honestly don't know. I don't I don't know. OK, well, we will find out next week or at least we'll find out half of the answer next week yeah on another exciting episode of we've got worm So let's go in. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm getting ready to engage. <laughs> what is happening? It's the most distracting thing I've ever seen. Um, do you do that every time and I just can't see no, it? Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> we're going to engage. Okay. Let's go in five. five I, I'm not going to be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fine. All right. Let's go in five, four, three, two, one.